Hopefully it's going to be out on time because we have been pressed to uh, to get everything organised in time. But I think it will be. We've managed. We I have so. managed. It's currently uh, 25 past two in the morning. As we're currently recording, <laughs> as, as, we're as, recording as we are this. currently recording this right now. But so uh, yeah, we're 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 getting the work done so you can get your podcast in time. <laughs> Definitely. And because we're going fishing tomorrow, so we need to get it done before we yeah. So we have to apologise. The winner of the competition last week doesn't exist because we messed up on the posts. Well, I kind of messed up. It was my fault. I'll take responsibility. Because I put the competition post in the same release as all the podcast information on Facebook, which means it was kind of hidden in the See More button. Yes, yeah, so no, no one, one, no one, no one saw more. So nobody's won the Reloading with Rosie mug. Which is one of the best mugs we've yeah. had, and it's I can actually see it. We're, and I've been eyeing up that mug. Do we have any more of those? Uh, I think I've got six of them. Oh, okay, so we're going to be putting up the same competition for a reloading with a rosy mug, uh, and just look out for it. And this time, I'm going to put it on Instagram as yeah. well. So, so on Instagram, we'll, Facebook. Yeah, uh, so it'll be a picture-related one, isn't it? Uh, yeah, we want to see well, what you're doing at this time of year because all the seasons are open. Uh, the reloading with Rosie is a uh, which, out of context, you're like, what the hell is yeah, that? Who, who's doing what <laughs> who's with Rosie? Rosie? <laughs> uh, there is a reloading, as an ammunition reloading series called Reloading with Rosie that was done in conjunction with Edgar Brothers and Hornady. And that is, I think there's five parts of it, and it's currently on YouTube. And it's the, the it's basics of, the it's basics of reloading. She brings yeah. in experts yeah. to explain the different steps. So if you reload or you're thinking about reloading, you can go and check that out. And even better still, you can enter the competition, you can get a reloading with Rosie mug. Fantastic. There you go. Now, oh, I was just going to say, now we've got another competition, but that but is we don't. the competition. That is, no, it. That, that is the competition. Uh, now we've got a guest. We do, yeah. Uh, we On this week's show, we have Ben O'Brien, formerly from Yeti, where a lot of people will know him from. Um, he has a rather good um, Instagram. And he is also a podcaster. And we've mentioned his podcast before. His podcast is The Hunting Collective. And we put out a blog post about not just his, but other podcasts yep. a week a bit ago. Yeah, we it, just, uh, it is one of my top podcasts now to listen it to is it, on in the, the hunting It space. is on the subscribing list. It is indeed. Um, so, yeah, he is on the show. We talk for quite some length. I think this is going to be like a two-hour podcast. Yeah, it's over two hours, I think. Uh, we talk a bit about Nepal because interestingly, uh, he was hunting in the same place that I was in, uh, last year in Nepal. So we talk about that experience for a bit, his time at Yeti and the production of those films and what was involved there. Some of his earlier life, um, as a hunting editor or some of the big name publications in the States, we dig into meat and hunting ethics as well we end up asking him about what he's doing now because now he's uh, left Jetty and a whole bunch of other people in the industry that he's had some amazing experiences with. You name any big-named hunter globally, 
and it does seem that Ben O'Brien has had something to do with them or hunted with them or knows them personally. And you'll you'll know that if you listen to his podcast because he's had a lot of those great, great, great guys. And we had a lot of fun recording it with, with him. We as did. Well. Yeah, it was a good laugh tonight. Yeah, it was. It was really, it was really Despite good. the fact that we started at midnight. It was yeah, really it was, good. Yeah, it was, it was really good. So I've been uh, really pleased to learn more about Ben's background because although I listen to his podcast like ours you're always speaking to other people yeah. and trying to glean information from them so it was great to to have him on the other side uh, and be able to you know talk through some of his experiences and I've learned a lot tonight it's been great it's been invigorating it has been I, I don't feel like it's the latest I episode. really don't no. in uh, other news Modern Huntsman Volume 2 is very much on the way and oh, yeah. if you want to get your hands on it when it comes into the country first, I'm talking about the UK um, or Europe, then pre-order it now on the website because if you pre-order it, it means that you will get the first batch that comes into the country. Yes. Uh, many of you have, so thank you. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, yeah, I'm beyond excited to see what they're yeah, doing with this. Really I, cool I know for a fact that Tyler and uh, Tyler Sharp and Charles Post have been together for the last little while putting the finishing touches together and i am off to norway in well three weeks three weeks time i'll be in norway um doing another piece for another issue another issue which is which we can't which tell is, you anything about no we can't say anything <laughs> about it but uh it's crazy we're already like planning that far uh, that far ahead because issue two is not even out but no it's not uh, but yeah um gonna be in norway so that's gonna be fun i always love it when i go that's to norway. an extra way isn't it uh, Apart from fishing tomorrow, yeah, and then we're in Ireland. Oh after yeah, we that. got a big trip to Ireland. Yeah, um, Ireland after that, and then I can't remember where else we're off to. There's a few things. Yeah, there's a, there's a few things but here and there. Imminently, we've got a few days off. We're fishing up in uh, north of Aberdeenshire for a day and a bit uh, after this podcast finishes recording, and then next week we're going up to the area around Loch Ness fishing with our cousin. That's and work. We're we're our work is um, finding out if there's any fish in the river. In the river, genuinely, that is our job to find out how it fishes. So we're not uh, going to enjoy it at all. No, um, uh, because it's, it's, only seri- work. It's, it's serious work, <laughs> and I've got to find out. Yeah, what 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 fish and we've actually how to had catch it. we've actually had a pretty good week because we're doing that next week, and on Tuesday we spent the day at the shooting range, which was also work. We did. Important work. We did. Um, we we, were, you we did a live video on Instagram, actually. We, we had a lot of angry messages from people <laughs> who were having to sit in their office watching us on the shooting range. Yeah. Well, we had we had all we had all the rifles out then, and we were testing uh, testing them. Testing out, loads. Uh, long, new ammo, long range. New scopes. Longish range. Not not super long range for some people. I bought a new gong. Yeah. It a does. It does go gong. gong. And Byron managed to shoot the bolt off it, and it <laughs> fell off. So that was the end of our fun because we didn't want to walk all the way up the range to go and. To be fair, up. it was the end of the day. We it were, was we the end were, of the we day. We were wrapping up. Um, I think that's about it. I think this podcast is going to be long enough. Yeah, I think it will be. Uh, we hope that you all enjoy, and you'll hear from us again in two weeks. Ben, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Uh, it, it's definitely beer o'clock here because it's uh, five to midnight. It's a slightly earlier time over in Bozeman, Montana. How are you doing? It's a I'm new move great. for you in Montana. It's uh, a recent yeah. move. 
Yeah, freshly arrived. Thanks for having me on, of course. Um, Pleasure. Yeah, freshly arrived. It is happy hour here. It's just about five, <laughs> 5 to 5, so I imagine we can both have a beer. Good, good. What, what part of the States have you come from to go to Montana? I moved from Texas to Montana. I was um, in Texas for the last four years for for my job at Yeti Coolers. Um, originally from the East Coast, but enjoyed my time in Texas. Uh, a lot of barbecue, a lot of beer, a lot of a lot of fine folks and music down there. A lot of guns. I actually, I was just going to say barbecue. That is what I think of when I think of Texas. <laughs> well, you would be right in thinking that. There's plenty of that down there. Yeah, there's plenty of guns. I give you that too. Um, it's a fun place, man. It's a fun culture. They're, they're proud of their who they are and their heritage, and and uh, it is unique. And same, hopefully, to discover Montana. We're looking to, you know, my family and I are looking to stay in Montana for hopefully quite some time. That's our plan. Good. No, we we are uh, we have plan. Neither of us have been to North America, uh, but we have plans to go soon. And as we were saying just before we started to record. Uh, Montana and Bozeman and Montana is particularly high on the list because we know an increasing number of people there. We know more people in Montana than we do in the rest of the United States. So. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably a good thing if you like to go hunting. Yeah, I would say you have a, you'll have a friend somewhere with an elk spot and a mule deer spot and an antelope spot. So yeah, you'll be in good shape. It's always a good excuse. Now, um, I wanted to start. We're going to do. We're going to do a bit of your the history. I want to talk about Yeti and a whole heap of other things. But we're going to start in a maybe a slightly strange place. But I think it'll be a good step off for the rest of this podcast because you and I have a connection that you're probably not all that aware of. Because uh, six months after you were in Nepal, I was in exactly the same location with the same outfitter doing the same hunt. I was filming. Uh, my brother wasn't there because, um, well, one of the main reasons was at that point he couldn't walk so well because he'd just fallen down a ditch and knackered his knee. Um, so I, I was alone, but I was, so when I've heard you talking about Nepal on podcasts, and I've obviously seen the, the film that's come out, uh, from Yeti with Cole Kramer and that in it and yourself, uh, it was kind of weird because I'd lived that just six months after you. So I, I wanted to talk about Nepal with you first as a kickoff for this. Yeah, as I'm tri- glad to have. The, I'm glad there's somebody else that has suffered that. <laughs> speak about it's uh, uh, Daryl. You can feel free to chip into to both of us and ask anything, being that you you haven't experienced that firsthand. I haven't experienced it, but because we're editing the film, I've yeah. I've seen it. Yeah, you've kind of lived it. <laughs> I've lived second. it through film. Yeah, yeah many times. Oh, as trips go, what was Nepal like from you, sort of out of your own mouth? Yeah, yeah. Got, it was there's so many things. It's hard to kind of boil it down. Yeah, um, it's okay. We got time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think first and foremost for me, um, it was a bit of a test of my abilities. You know, how far you can stretch your abilities and how far you can stretch your mind and your body. And 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 not. It really was less about hunting abilities because we didn't do a whole lot of hunting. We just did a whole lot of walking towards the destination, and then we saw the sheep and we pulled the trigger. So most of it was just, you know, at the end and looking back on it, it was just a, how far could I stretch, you know, myself, my physical abilities, my mental abilities, my, you know, my endurance um, in both those facets, you know. So it was more of a personal test than it was, you know, a trek to get an, a certain animal or, you know, have a certain experience. And it, it, it definitely um, was <laughs> – 
it stood up to those ex- expectations and more because I was certainly tested. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I look forward to going back one day to see if um, if given those same tests, I can succeed the way I did there and 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 challenge myself again because I, that's that's what it was to me, just one big challenge. Well, we'll get into that because I know it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was tough. But how did the? Um, what I don't know is how did that trip to that place come about? Sure. What was yeah, the catalyst? Um, yeah. So Cole Kramer obviously is a, a Yeti ambassador, and I, who I worked with at my role at Yeti, and him and I became pretty fast friends, and we hunted together in December. I would say December of sixteen in Kodiak Island where he guides and we hunted blacktail deer on Kodiak and we got uh it's a whole nother podcast about that story um we got stuck on the island uh frozen rivers and and all that and got stuck there for a few days and we had a lot of time in a windblown tent to discuss our life's goals and our hunting goals and he kept bringing up Nepal and and I kept just kind of inside my head like yeah right okay Nepal because he had recently been to Azerbaijan and my thought was, you know, that's the ends of the earth for me. I'm no Jim Shockey. Uh, I'm not. That's that's not in my wheelhouse, especially where I came from. I'm happy to do any of those things when those opportunities arise, but I didn't really see it as a reality. But uh, he pitched it hard to me there in Kodiak, and then later on um, pitched it again as something he wanted to do. And my original reaction was, "Hey, we'll, we'd love to support you. We support everything you do as an ambassador of our company." But you know, that's not something that we would, you know, do a film on or um, follow you along on. It's something we support you any way we could. Uh, but it turned pretty quickly when I talked to our our content team and our, some of our film production folks internally, and they started mentioning Renan Ozturk's name as a person who might be interested in filming something like that. Um, and if you guys know Renan, I mean, he's a renowned filmmaker. He was... Um, one of the top climbers in the world. He's, you know, was was filmed Maru Meru with Conrad Anker and Jimmy Chen. An amazing film. Uh, an amazing film. And so this this for this person, you know, he's a Nat Geo photographer. He's he's one of the more prolific guys in the outdoor space. And when his name started getting bandied about, and then when I heard he was into the idea, Cole and I, you know, kind of mutually pushed the gas pedal down to the floor. And we're, you know, trying to make it happen because it seemed like a reality. And that was in January, and we ended up leaving in late March. <laughs> so oh, that was very have, quick. Yeah, we did not have much time to train uh, mentally or physically. In fact, I just kind of threw together a training regimen and just knew that I was going to gonna suffer a little bit. Wow. Yeah, no, I had a little bit, a little bit more notice than that to go film it. Not a lot. Uh, but it wasn't a slight – it was – because it was a bit later than you, you had a lot of snow, which we didn't have. Um, so it was slightly different, slightly different conditions. But ha- had you ever been to India, Nepal, that part of the world before, or was did you also have the culture shock on top of what we'll get into, uh, sort of as you were going up the mountains at high altitude? Yeah, no culture shock for sure. Um, I had been, you know, traveled around the world a bit. Um, uh, but I had not been to that part of the world at all. I had closest I'd come is to to hunt driven boars in Bulgaria, um, and I'm just remembering that culture shock, um, it was nothing like the culture shock when you land in Kathmandu. Um, I don't I don't know that coming from where I come from that there's a culture shock that would measure to that one. I mean it is it's this fury of dust and people 
and noises and it, it's it's just, it just it's an affront to pretty much every sense I have as yeah. a as an American as an American or a human either one. It's, and um, it's it is very unique. And I'd spent a bit of time working in in India some years before, uh, and it was kind of similar, but. I enjoyed my experience in Nepal a whole heap more. Uh, it was it was kind of the same, the same type of people, the same kind of mix of religions and cultures, but in a in a kind of different atmosphere. And yeah, as challenging as it was to be so different, even from from us here in the UK, I was just looking around like when you walk around Kathmandu and you're in amongst the people and this every corner you go around there's another little temple and place that people are praying it's it is so far removed from what we see day to day walking around our streets it's kind of hard to take it all in yeah yeah i mean it is you know it, it becomes this this aversion of culture and then and you can't like you said you when you walk around Kathmandu which we did a couple of nights before we took off for the for the Himalayas, you just you, you find yourself not able quite to sit and focus on one thing for very long because it's just a hot beehive of activity. And for me, I just my biggest stress, my biggest worry during those first couple of days before we left off for camp, as I was I was I just remember being very worried that I wasn't going to be able to take it all in and I would never properly understand what I was looking at and I didn't have enough time to kind of sit and contemplate where I was and the culture that was here and, and learn uh, and I felt like I was missing too much just because there's so much there's so much there to take in mm, and it's very it's very fast because it's so busy yeah and everything's happening fast cars are rushing by people are rushing by there's moments in time that kind of just feel like they're you know they, they won't quite stop for you uh, mm. when you're when you're have your tourist hat on or at least in that you know you kind of feel you feel a little bit lost in the speed of it um, when you're there. I, I, at least I did. Did you have, I know for me, I, there was two kind of apprehensions I had uh, prior to actually even getting on the plane to going. One was I knew that we had a couple of days before going to the mountains and I really didn't want to get ill because I knew it was going to be tough anyway. And when I was in India, it took me about six days and then I was as ill as a dog, iller than I've ever been in my life since. And the second was, I had no measure for how my body coped with altitude. I keep reasonably fit. I've done a lot of stuff, uh, kind of the extremes of what my body can do, but But, but I've never done altitude. We've lived at sea level most of our life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too, me too. Yeah, Yeah. no, I think uh, all that stuff is true. You don't, you know, as far as like even when I say, hey, we, we tried to train, I think the reality is, especially with altitude, is that altitude's not to be messed with. I mean, it's this as you further you go up, the more serious your situation gets, even if you're dealing with it well. I mean, it, it is a momentary lapse. Uh, an edema happens, cerebral, pulmonary. That Those things happen in moments. They're not – it's not a long – most of the time, it's not a long, drawn-out process. And it's no joke. And it's no joke. Yeah, I just want people to listen to this. this as you think about, you know, high-altitude hunts of any kind, uh, whether it's sheep hunting, you know, in Nepal or, or – hunts in the states or in canada you know these these aren't things to mess around with and there's really you could train all you want and that's you know your training and your fitness level is not a predictor with of how you will deal with altitude it just isn't um and so you know really it's it's an awareness of the danger 
and it's an awareness of how you'll deal with it when it when and if it arises and if you have those things you'll be prepared but you can never truly be prepared for what that altitude may may do to you because yeah. there's a, a myriad of things that could happen and that was the thing that bugged me the most because it didn't really matter what i did before i left apart from yeah. knowing what i might go through like you say, there's nothing you can do to really prepare for it. You can, what's, uh, Diamox is the pills that they give you for it. Yeah. Um, one, yep. <laughs> a whole bunch of people before, uh, when I said, telling friends and stuff, oh, I'm going to Nepal, I said, uh, have, you, have you ordered your Viagra yet? Did you get that? <laughs> yes, I, yeah. got that. I got that. <laughs> and too. I thought they were pulling my leg, but legitimately, I actually ended up eventually phoning my doctor because I, I wanted to get the, the Diamox just in case. And uh, I said, look, I don't know whether... I, People have been pulling my leg, but this is what they told me. He said, no, he said, for years, that was the prescription for high altitude. He said, but um, it's it's changed in, however, you know, the last few years, they have something better than that now, which is Diamox. So yeah. um, we did actually have that with me, but um, it, I took half a tablet of that, and it made me feel really ill, so I never took I mean, Vi- Viagra is dual use, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe it's a good well, option. Um, there, yeah, there was, like, uh, me, Simon, and 30 male Tw- Sherpas. 20 so. Sherpas, and some Viagra. So I, I don't yeah. know if it would have had much use in the mountains, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I, you don't make a lot of friends no. walking around the, eff- the effects of Viagra in the mountains. They're like, listen, man. Calm down. We haven't seen a sheep yet. Yeah. A few uh, donkeys. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's not a whole lot going on up there. No, there really isn't. That'd help you out with that part of, that part of the effect. Yeah, we I took I ended up taking Diamox yeah. um because I had to. But I our doctors and folks when I went to get my shots and things to prepare to go over there, um they were they weren't adamant, but they were like it would be a good idea to cycle Diamox before you go. Mm. Um and they talked me through that. I decided not to do it. You know, on advice. We, you know, you know how it is over there. I mean, we had a, we had a, a medic in our production crew. One of our producers was a mountain, was pretty much an expert in mountain medicine, as I came to find out. Um, and so we, you know, I was able to talk to them. He led groups um, all over the Himalayas as a tour guide and a guide in a lot of ways. So we had that um, because, as you well know, the language barrier. You can't just call up raju or call up man bahador and say hey man no what, what kind of boots are you wearing you just can't like you can't do that so the language barrier it was nice for in, in our case to have um you know uh english speaking american native living in Kathmandu to talk to um, and and that helped a little bit and that's what i think was maybe to a detriment for me because i got to talk to him and hear all all his stories and all the things he would worry about in trips like this and it it became pretty heavy after talking to him a few times really quickly understanding that this wasn't something that uh i was should take lightly and i should be prepared um and i i was wasn't nervous going into it but i just knew you know i had done mountain hunts before i knew what danger was and i just i just kind of knew in the back of my mind that this is going to be um this this is could could go bad, and I just need to know, be prepared for that, and know what to do. I was chuckling to myself there because I was thinking if you could have phoned up uh, one of the guides or one of the chefs and said, "What boots are you wearing?" They probably would have said flip flops. <laughs> yeah, they would have been like, "Do you have any duct tape?" Yeah, <laughs> that's what. Are those guys <laughs> the Crocs? Just, they're just nails. I mean, not man man uh, who we'll talk about, um, and we referenced in the previous podcast we actually recorded in Nepal. Uh, but some of the guys, uh, the, some of the porters, it was crazy what they were wearing, and they just 
Yeah. And they were just hard, hard, hard men. And, well, I say yeah. men, boys. Some of them were like 16, boys. 17 years old. Yeah, and I think it's 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 not, you know, if you read a lot of the books, you know, the early books from Nepal and some of the early explorers, they would collect Sherpas and porters by going village to village and kind of saying, who wants to go? Mm. Um, it's a little more organized than that now, but it's also a little bit the same. I mean, they're going from town to town and um, recruiting, you know, the best of the best and saying, come come to the mountain with us. And they just kind of have what they have. Yeah, um, which isn't a lot. That, which is nothing. I mean, it's it's... To us, it's nothing less than nothing at some some levels, you know. And there's if you if you're looking to get humbled by a place and its people, yeah, that's a good place to to start. Because every time, every time I would be like, man, I guess this wind, this is rough wind, and this Sitka gear, you know, I'm getting a little chilly. And I look over there, be a, a fellow in a t-shirt and flip flops with it, a 200 pound. You know, two hundred pound load bounced on his head. It it does always make me laugh though when you do look at the skier, especially boots being a prime example. There, you know, they're walking up in flip flops, probably some Crocs taped up, and they achieve all what you can do in like a three hundred pound pair of boots. And and you you can have complaints about and they do it faster than we do. And then and then faster. uh, Another guy, um, Ed Stafford, he walked. He first man to ever walk the full length of the Amazon uh, jungle. He started in boots, finished I think the last year in 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 Crocs. Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, it it just shows you. I mean, they they do part of it is that they they do live it. Yeah, they they live it every day. But on top of that, they're also hard, hard, hard people. Yeah. Well, they're hard people because they that's all they know, and it's not hard to them. That's just their life. But yeah, I think. Yeah, I think once you like. You hunt around in your on your home turf or in your home country, and you you really never you, you get perspective, but in in bite sized chunks. You, your perspective is an animal might give you perspective, a certain terrain might give you some perspective. You learn in in, in bite sized chunks, but when you go, you know, if you want to gather some perspective on life, on what a challenge really is, on what hardship really is, I mean, you go to Nepal and you look those people in the eye, and you watch them, you hear them play music in the morning on their flutes yep. and wooden recorders and you hear them laughing at night and then you see what they do in the daytime you see that they'll take double loads for double pay which means they're carrying 250 pounds on in a basket bounced on their foreheads <laughs> um you know you, there's no way then you come home and you're you know for in my case like you're sitting in traffic in austin texas and you just laugh you're like man this sucks wait a minute you just kind of yeah. chuckle yeah. to yourself reality yeah, and there's this like bit of reality. So yeah, for me, I yeah I got a sheep and it was great, but uh, that that's you know that's trivial. Yeah, uh, compared to the rest of it. The thing, one of the, the other things that I really loved is they were always very very positive and very welcoming, and I, and it, it wasn't because they were you know they were there because they they were being paid to be there that they were like that. I don't think. I think that was just how they were. Like you were saying, round camp at night when they're playing music, you see them interacting with, you can't understand what they're saying because they're speaking their native language. But with very little, they were very happy. And I think that's something we, you know, we tend to uh, think in the modern world that we live in with, I'm even, I'm sitting in our office looking at all the shit that we've got around us. Some of it we need for work, but, you know, we can be, there are a lot of people in the world who are very happy with a lot, lot less. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it, 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 there's like a depth of soul, not to get all deep on you guys, but there's like a depth of soul that that requires. Like you have to be happy. You have to be internally and at the soul level happy to endure the things that they endure. Like, you, you know, you can't be 
begrudging that kind of work because you'll never get it done. You just won't. I mean, you can't do what those folks do on a daily basis. I mean, when we were in, um, shit, they might have been cutting the same tree when you were there, but when we were in uh, base camp there in Dulearsa, they were cutting on this big oak tree with the most the dullest axe I've ever seen. Might as well just been hitting the handle on, the, <laughs> on this tree. And this tree must have been 30 feet around. I mean, it was a giant tree. And when we left, there was just two, uh, one younger guy and, a, and an older uh, villager just beating on this tree like that's the only thing they were ever going to do. And when we, <laughs> when we left, I thought that it was going to take them a year to get that tree down on the ground. And when we came back six, seven, eight days later, it was on the ground. And then they were chopping it up for firewood. And so you just – it's just like that. those little bits – those little moments in time when you realize like life is different here, people are different here, and there is this I don't know, I wouldn't I would say a pioneering mentality that, you know, six days walk to the nearest road is six days walk to the nearest road. It is what it is. And that's the, there it's is not cumbersome. There is a reason why like, the the British Army still recruits from there and has yeah. the most one of the most feared regiments on the planet yeah. because of the because of their people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Th- that little analogy that you just painted there, it reminds me of, uh, there's a, a paragraph in Aldo Leopold's book, A Sound County Almanac, where he talks about the appreci- appreciating warmth from a fire, and you can never appreciate it the same unless you've cut your own wood. And on a, on a different scale, that's what you've just described there, you will never be able to appreciate what they gain from cooking, and not just warmth, but the cooking and warmth that they gain from a tree like that when most of us go in, flick the switch, and our heating comes on. It's a different depth of appreciation for what you have. Yeah, and then, the, like, when you sign up for a hunt like that, you know, to document it like you and I were trying to do, but also just to experience it, um, I feel bad because I've run into some folks that have been there, you know, either prior to my going or after my going that the first thing they did was show me the sheep they killed. Like, look at this sheep. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, rec- I recognize that guy. There's there's Raju or, or Mon or any of the other folks that we met. I'm like, that's nice. You were probably somewhere close to where I was. But I feel sad that you just showed me the sheep because I, I, I think the sheep would be about the 15th photo I'd get to, the 15th story I'd tell you before before uh, if you asked me what my trip to Nepal was like. And um, that exactly what you're saying is, is being able to, to gather that from them you know, to take that gift back home with you, um, to, to understand that, you know, there's just some things we're lucky to have the fortune we have, but we just need to know that there'll be gaps in our existence, you know, gaps in the way that we live because we will never truly know the mindset of those people. And we've kind of got a pretty lucky glimpse into that because it's, there's not that many people that go up that valley. No. Um, and and do what you did and what what I was able to do. There's just not that many people. There's, There's no other reason to be there, really, as a yeah. as an outsider. Yeah, I mean, how many people go to Everest Base Camp a year? Loads. That's not yeah. loads, thousands of people. And so it's like you know, twenty thousand a year. Yeah, it's it's a yeah, ridiculous I mean, that's, number. No. That's ridiculous, and it's it's dozens of people that go through Dulé Arsa on a yearly basis, and so. You know, we're you, you just you have a unique glimpse into the human existence there that I don't think you would get very many places. You know, maybe the Chamane tribes of South America or something like that, where you would see see those the you know the 
prism for which they live life and it's that's that's what i took away from it in the, in the end yeah absolutely it was i just googled the numbers just to make oh, sure you? it was, i was i wasn't too far off it's thirty-five thousand a year that go visit, to base camp the, the go to base camp yeah so what we did in terms of uh in terms of something that is rare and unusual it, it surpasses it surpasses base camp by a long yeah. margin by a long i i think i bet you if if 50 people 50 outsiders a year are in dual AR, so i'd be surprised you know there's no way to really know unless you'd ask those guys but and that hopefully that number rises because i i hope people can experience uh that environment and what it means but it's it's you know sometimes when you get on these mountain hunts you're kind of struck by the beauty of the mountain i don't remember as much being struck i mean i was at some level but i remember more of just being struck by what was right in front of my face than what was far off in the distance yeah there's um there's a strange conflict there because like you were saying it would be great if more people went and i know exactly what you're saying but so many places that i've been around the world where it is off the beaten track and i know not many people are going and i really want to tell and i very often do tell the story of how awesome it is and and the the experience and, and the smell and the look and the feel and then there's that part of me that doesn't really want any more people to go because i don't want it to be ruined by people we've seen we've seen it in scotland the the hidden gems every time a newspaper or something finds one of these hidden gems they publish where it is and then it's mobbed by people and then the litter starts and and all the rest of the the problems that come with it i mean i think hauling litter up in nepal and dump while they do it on everest i guess yeah uh but uh, it happens all over the world but but i I, you know i I say that and i'm a a bit of a hypocrite because we're filmmakers so (laughs) (laughs) my (laughs) job is showing off places to showcase beautiful places in the world and tell great stories that's what we love to do is tell great stories so by that responsible people come we try and you know it'd be good if it's responsible people but it doesn't matter i think every step and influence from outside cultures anywhere in the world to some extent dilutes it a bit i mean you, you see it all over the world you look at south american tribes even and they're wearing f- european football shirts yeah yeah. It takes yeah. something away, and I, I don't know whether we're really giving them anything that yeah. makes their life any better. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder that too. Like I and I, I always wonder kind of what if it's a selfish endeavor, like how selfish it is. You know what my going over there, what I really gave to them, and what you know we tell ourselves their jobs, and it's real. I mean, those jobs are real. There's yep. 35 people. You know, we stand around and had a tipping ceremony where we handed out cash to 35 very happy porters and, and workers and cooks. and That was a cool experience. People. A really strange yeah. experience for me, that. Yeah, strange for me, too, because I thought normally I just, like, this is just like a, a very brief, short handshake where we don't celebrate, you know, the handover of cash. But they do it differently because they – and, and it, just another part of their culture I respect. You know, they've earned that. Um, each person has – has achieved something small and in the greater expedition. So they deserve a little call out and some, some round of applause at some level. So I like that, but you're right. We go through that in, here in America. I mean, it's, you know, the national monument debate is a great one. Want, national yeah. monuments here are set aside to preserve uh, certain beautiful landscapes and certain antiquities that we hold dear. But at the same time, when you put something on a national, make something a national monument, all the tourists put it on their, uh, their tour GPS, yeah. so they can, GPS. Oh, I'll go over to the Bears Ears National Monument. That's great. That's a national monument. It must be important. So they go over there and check it out. 
Um, so at the same time, the act of preserving a place, even in that act, is uh, can be can can have an ill effect on what you're trying to do. So I think um, I I know that I respect that place and those people. In going back, I might I may do it I may do it differently if I ever do get to go back. But I think you know appreciating the experience and providing those jobs to those people is enough for me. Yep. Could we do it better? Sure, we could do it better. Um, but I think that's enough. Uh, I want to ask you about national monuments a bit later, uh, but just to explain it, especially to our sort of UK and European audience, because I know it's something you've talked about a lot, and it is big debate in the states. Uh, but just to continue sure. with this, and to kind of get to uh, being in the mountains and where uh, you've you've already alluded to it, but where the kind of difficulty started uh, for you, because there was a lot to overcome for you to kind of get to the end, just get to the end of the trip. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot. There was a lot. What yeah, happened, no, I, Ben? What happened? What happened? I'll tell you. Uh, we, when I got to, you know, I was in Kathmandu. I was a little credulous, incredulous. I was like, I, I'll walk around. I'll breathe the air. I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm just going to, this is me. I'm experiencing it. If I get sick, I get sick. This is what it is. And I bet you Sam just so, said to you, don't walk around yeah. in town, didn't he? Yeah, they're yeah. like just stay at the stay at the hotel. It's a very nice hotel. His, <laughs> you know, I believe his father or one of his family members own the hotel. It's very nice. There was actually a wedding going on. We had some drinks at, but uh, I walked. We walked around for one night, breathed the air. Of course, I had you know by the time we were in the helicopter headed up to the drop off point, I had some respiratory stuff going on. I had basically a cold at that point. It wasn't you know my lungs weren't ready for altitude. That's for sure. Um, but the first day in in the hike up to Dulayarsa, I felt great. Um, and in we had snow, as you said, we had snow on our trip, so we were stuck in base camp in Dulayarsa for an extra day. And during that extra day, most of our crew, most of our American crew, was sick, um, and I was the only one that was feeling good. So I remember Cole Kramer being in his tent, unable to even crawl out the door to sight his rifle in. Oh, really? And I was doing. And I was doing acclimation hikes up and down the hills there behind Dulay Del- Arso. So you're like, I'm the man. I'm the man. Bring I'm the it man. on. I was hitting my wife up on the on the sat phone. <laughs> I'm an alpha male. I'm the, <laughs> I may just live here forever. I think I'm the I'm the strongest of the tribe. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and and you know, Cole was very sick that day, and and Renan Ozturk was having some trouble that evening, um, and 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 so I, you know, I saw that and I thought. It's going to have to be coming for me at some point, but you just keep, you kind of get wrapped up in the experience. And so we, we left out a day late because there's a, a good bit of snow in the pass on that first pass where the, that goes under the Jolpa peaks there. And, um, we left a day late and we got going and I felt great. Um, I, I think it was probably at least 1500, 2000 foot elevation gain that day coming from 10,000 to about 12,000. 12, yeah. It's 12, quite a hike. Yeah. That's quite a hike, yeah. You go through the oak forest, live oaks, and, and get up into the alpine during that trip. And, and it was pretty lively that day. There was singing and hooting and hollering. We were filming. We were all feeling pretty good. And uh, we got to the very first uh, pass to go down into the valley in our our wonderful, I don't know if you even call them donkeys, they're more like mules, but the, the mules that were rolling with us got stuck in the snow on one of these you know, pretty thin, pretty small uh, goat trails that are, as you well know, that are that uh, One foot that wide. Mountain. 
yeah, one foot wide. And so we're having to like kind of slide off the hill to let the mules go back by. They now have to go back to camp because they can't make it through the pass because of snow. And now the porters and Sherpas have to take on extra loads and go forward. And so as we're re reconvening and figuring that all out, I remember very distinctly, you know, filming with my phone and there's some part of it in the actual film, the Yeti film where I'm standing there with my phone filming. And then the next thing I remember, I'm looking up at the sky wondering why, why I'm laying on the ground and I don't remember falling over. I don't remember feeling dizzy. I just kind of remember being on the ground and, and wondering why I was there. And then very quickly realizing, you know, everybody start was starting to go forward. So I stood up and started walking and our medic and our, one of our producers and our medic, Ben Ayers turned around, I think saw the manner of which I was walking. <laughs> I must've had a, a bit of a, a limp or some, yeah, I must've been swerving on the trail a little bit. So he came back to check on me. He said, let's sit down and, and are you feeling okay? I was like, man, I feel a little bit lightheaded. I think I might've, you know, kind of passed out a little <laughs> bit over there. Just a bit. That might not be good. Just a bit. And as we were sitting there chatting, uh, at some point during that exchange, I look over across the valley there and I see a wolf, a black wolf. I'm looking over and I'm examining him. I say, hey, Ben, there's there's a wolf over there. We should get our binos out. And he said, he just looked at me. And at some level, he just said, shit. <laughs> this dude has lost it. <laughs> um, I think he knew right then like that we were dealing with something that was more serious than just like a, a little bit of dizziness. And I was convinced there was a wolf there. I mean, I more than like I was, I was like, look at you, you can see it right there, man. It's standing broadside, hundred, two hundred yards away. Wow. And he, I, we just had this exchange where he was just trying to keep me calm. He was like, okay, well that's cool. Well let's let that alone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> moving on, yeah. we'll put that moving in the on. Box. So then, yeah, we'll put that over here. We'll we'll <laughs> put that in things that aren't there. We'll put that on the things that aren't there list and move on. And so he's like, stand up and let's see how far we can get. Uh, are you, you think you can walk? I'm like, dude, I'm fine. Don't worry. And we stand up and I immediately realize I'm like, my head is floating away from my shoulders at a pretty, at a pretty uh, prolific pace. And so we get going maybe 15, 20 steps. And I'm like, okay, man, I'm seeing it now. This isn't, you know, I'm feeling dizzy, lightheaded. You know, I can't really kind of get my thoughts straight. I'm seeing now that something's going on. And so he's like, here's the plan. We, I've got some Diamox. We're going to make it as far as we can make it. And we're going to get you some Diamox, get you back to camp, which at that point was maybe only a mile away, maybe two miles. Um, back down to the camp in the River Valley, and we'll get you some Diamox, and we'll just we'll see if we can get you feeling right. And not too long after that, I was walking, following him down the trail, and at this point I've kind of got my hand on his pack as we're walking. And I look over at this little L-shaped turn on the trail, and there's a baby. And I thought to, and I thought to myself, hmm. That's that's not good. You know you're in, you know <laughs> you know you're in the shit when you're seeing wolves and babies, babies. in the mountains. Yeah, yeah the man. Ball. And I'm thinking I got two options here. One, that's really a baby, and no one has noticed this baby, <laughs> and I need to help the baby. And the second thing is there's no baby there, and I'm going home. <laughs> and so I was like, listen, you know, not 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 for lack of a better way to say it, but screw this baby. I'm going to act like it doesn't exist. And if it happens to be here, it's really on the baby. I don't know how it got here or why it's <laughs> if there. If the baby got there it by sh- itself, it can make its, it's way the, out. <laughs> yeah, it's the baby's fault for even being there. And so, you know, I kind of put that on the baby and I just kept going. And I remember looking back 
and just thinking like blinking my eyes thinking this is not <laughs> this isn't happening i'm not seeing this stuff like it's not and to me it was as real as could be and uh we kept going and i just maybe 100 yards after that i just kind of so i gotta stop man i gotta just collapsed and so he gave me some diamox we had some food i remember and we just tried to have a normal conversation and try to joke about it and he was doing good but it ended up i ended up coming down into camp that night basically with him holding my shoulders walking behind me and me kind of leaning on my trekking poles going one step at a time and i just remember going down the hill into that first camp not really knowing if my feet or my trekking poles were actually hitting the ground or not like or what they were even doing and so i was pretty out of it and they got me down into camp finally put me in a big old patagonia puffy jacket and i kind of sat in the in the tent and they were asking me questions and filming me and i was saying some pretty morbid <laughs> pretty morbid things i was out of it um i think they asked me at one point hey uh you know what's what are you feeling right now i said well we're you know we need to know the name of this mountain because this is where you know we're all gonna die so we need to know <laughs> what's the name of this mountain <laughs> so i was like i need to know that and was just, so yeah uh, I got the Diamox, and eventually I made it to my actual sleeping tent and passed out and woke up with Ben Ayers, the medic, you know, kind of sleeping right next to me, clinging his medical bag. And I know that that, that evening as I was sleeping, they had discussed, like, you know, let's get the helicopter in here and just, just get him out and let's not mess around. Uh, luckily enough for me, I woke up the next morning, and, and I was feeling a little bit more like myself and and could eat a little bit and they put me on an acclimation hike and I made it and I was, I did pretty good and we kept on going and, and then I got the uh, next day I got the Kathmandu flu. I was, so was that coming was, out of every, uh, that was yeah. all altitude then. That was all altitude as far as I could tell. Yeah. Later on, you know, our medic was like, look, I think part of it was you're hitting this altitude. You were dehydrated, um, from you just having a cold and then this this illness hit you, further dehydrated you. So it's kind of like a combination of perfect storm of perfect storm of things that just kind of resulted. It wasn't you know any edema or any real serious thing. More like acute mountain sickness, something yeah. like that would probably be a good way to describe it. Brutal, uh, brutal. And then I got to feeling a little bit better. We got up the canyon there. Mon, our guy, main god Mon, spotted some sheep up the canyon. So we started glassing those sheep and radioed back to the rest of the crew to come up and meet us and well at that time he started glassing sheep and tried to show me where they were and i couldn't even lift my head up i was so sick it's like you know i just knew at that point like this is going to be bad and so you know my stomach was rolling i couldn't really move and by the time everybody had come to catch up with us i could barely get off the snowbank to do anything um but somehow, I don't even really remember how, somehow I made it to the next camp, which is a good good ways up there. Um, and when I made it to the next camp, I just fell over and passed out in the snow and just kind of crawled in the tent once they had put it together and slept for you know, who knows how long, 14, 14 hours, and only waking up to throw up or try to run to the latrine. Was it was it was it the blue tent? We had a blue tent for that. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Hopefully not the same blue tent. Hopefully they had got a new tent for your trip. I think it might have been the same blue tent. I'm sure we were probably gripping the same pole. Probably, yeah, probably. Yeah, had I known that, I'd have put a picture of myself in there, like a selfie. Be like Ben, ben was, here. was here. And it wasn't good, boys. Yeah. It wasn't good. Well, 
So so yeah, I mean it was it was those first three days, three and a half, four days was just just an assault on physically, mentally, kind of an assault on oh everything that I knew, you know, all hardships that I knew. And I, you know, Cole went up the mountain to kill his sheep. I couldn't even get out of the tent the entire day. I barely could eat a handful of rice. They kept bringing all this food to the tent for me to eat, and I couldn't even look at it. And, it's, uh, it's a good job yeah, that this uh, podcast isn't for Visit Nepal because I don't think anybody would be going. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we led off with the perspective part, you know. <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. <laughs> was, these are the gory details of that perspective. <laughs> but you you pulled through uh, that, like eventually, you, you kind of you you pulled through and you were able to get up onto the mountain with a gun. I did, yeah, I did with a gun, yeah. No, I, Cole uh, Kramer had a tag, so he went up and got his sheep on the first try. And when he came back and Renan Oster came back and Ben Ayers came back, these are, you know, in my eyes, expert mountaineers. I mean, these are people that have done things that I could never dream of. I mean, these are experts. I consider myself just a regular guy. And so when I saw the looks on their faces, the frozen facial hair, the wind-burned faces, the, just the collapsing into camp at 11, a. 11 p.m. after they had left at 5 a.m., and just the way they looked – like they had been through a war in the way I felt I was immediately like, well, I'm not going to be able to do that. I can't, there is, I mean, this, this, that trek up the mountain to kill that sheep took, you know, some of the more seasoned mountain hunters, mountain climbers to their limits. And I am about 5% capacity. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm doing the math. I'm like, "Ah, I don't, I just don't think it's going to happen. I don't think I can do it. Um, And, uh, you know, for lack of ego and just at that point being pretty beat down. Um, but to, to the credit of the people around me, they all, I think they all thought what I thought, but they never, you know, let me, let me hear it. They, they all, they just said, let's try Let's just try to get up here to the next, you know, let's go just right outside of camp. We see some sheep. Let's see if we can get you a shot. Um, that was the first day. And the second day was like, let's just go and we'll go as far as you can. And we'll see, you know, don't carry a pack. Don't worry about even carrying binos. Just, Tracking poles and yourself, and we'll do the rest. And uh, I made it up, up the the far pass down the valley on day six, and it was a trudge, man. It was you know two thousand feet up to about seventeen thousand feet, seventeen three, yeah. I think it was. Um, it was about two thousand feet up through this post holing through you know frozen over snow, you know ten feet of frozen over snow and these passes, and then getting to the top and realizing the sheep were another mile away to a point where we almost gave up then too so there was just many points where where i almost gave up our crew probably almost gave up on me uh, but nobody ever did and i eventually made it across the valley and slid on my butt with raju and mon down this last slope and climbed up a little ridge and there the sheep were and it was a fairly brief affair with the sheep it's like there they are saw them for the first time got my rifle out and then and was able to kill one in its bed yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah, Raju uh, and Man are so was, inc- you know, incredible guys. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Man is just, you know, never try to keep up with that guy. On no, that it'll kill you. Yeah, you will die. <laughs> and I almost did. Um, but, yeah, they were incredibly, you know, I think probably in their private moments, they're like, uh, this guy looked pretty fit. He looked like he could get it done. He had a good attitude. I don't know what happened. Um, and, that, and that's kind of how they, that's what they said in, in the film. And that's what they were saying mm. in person. It's like we, it was a little confusing to everybody, but it's just, you know, it happens. that place. It's yeah, just that place is, 
when I got to the the top camp that we camped at, I think it was fourteen and a half thousand feet in terms of camp. And for the five days we were there, I woke up every morning with a headache, but like a bad stiff neck headache that would take like an hour to go. The the milky tea that they'd bring every morning helped it go a little bit. Um, and some some of the guys suffered uh, more than I did, but I had one day in, in particular where if I didn't have if I hadn't have had a job to do, I needed to be there filming. I wouldn't have gone up the mountain because I just felt like death. Um, but yeah, so it sounds like you had it bad. But there is one. Well, there's there's more than one, but I can think of one immediate major positive from that story that you've just told us is that nothing you ever do from now until the end of days is going to feel as tough as that did. Yeah, everything's yeah. going mean, to be I, easy. That's kind of why I want to go back. Yeah. I'd like to, <laughs> if I can, I'd like to raise that bar and continually raise it. So the rest of your life, I can't. I I just I don't know if anyone yourself or me or anyone has done something like that. And it doesn't have to be Nepal. It could be really any anything that challenges you to you know to well past what you thought you were able to do in the in the situation. And I and I do often think if I was healthy, what what would it have been like for me? But that's it wasn't that way, and so I was forced to. Co- just forced to uh, get up every morning and do what I could do and keep doing that until I got what I came there for, um, which was a sheep. And really just the satisfaction of knowing that I was able to push through and do something like that. And and if you, you know, you live the rest, like you say, you live the rest of your life with this thing in the back of your mind yeah, that it's in the every, every op, yeah, every obstacle you come to, you're like, Psh, I've done harder than that. You know, Psh, oh man, I've had harder days than this one. For sure. And, um, when you when I run into people that are live in urban environments and live very soft uh, lives, and you know the smallest obstacle gets put in front of them and they turn away from it, you just be like, man, what could you achieve if you knew how much you could do? What is you know, possible? If you knew how, yeah, yeah it, what is possible? It becomes a mental game, and it's funny, I've just done uh, a trip to New Zealand uh, not that long ago, and the guide there who I was with, he was saying you'd be amazed how many people come and hunt with him. And he's a pretty, he's like a mountain goat, this guy. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, 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 it's tough terrain. It's different to Nepal. They don't have the altitude, but it's it technically, you know, can be just as difficult. You see, and the amount of guys that come, super fit guys. I mean, he said, you put them in the gym. He, he said to me, you put them in the gym against me. And he says, they'll smash me any day. He says, but the problem is that over an extended period of time on these big wilderness hunts, quite often that sort of mental ability to overcome the discomfort of wet boots and those things that you can't really train for unless you're doing the activity it just breaks yeah. them and they can be the fittest guys in the world but they that you know they can't deal with it yeah well i went we went we came back from um nepal in april and then i was in new zealand doing some of the gnarliest mountain training in the world 2 months later hmm. Um, and had, had an experience where I had been there the year before to New Zealand. And then this is my second trip to the same river Valley. And, um, I found myself over like almost too much enjoying the hardship. Like just, (laughs) just almost every step forward was like, you know what I gained in Nepal? Like, you know, this is what I can do now. Like I just enjoying this, this like new version of myself that I had chiseled out in yeah. Nepal and enjoying this like this isn't that hard now. Last I came here last year and I was 
just you know befuddled by how a person could get to the top of this mountain and here now I am gliding to the top and doing it three days in a row and killing a tar and being happy you know and not feeling like this is a hardship so you know once you've chiseled that that stuff away and you get to experience the benefit in tangible form you know you really do see that you know I was in that podcast I did with Cole on this subject we talked about going on these wilderness adventures and it sharpens you know the life knife you know you, oh, you yeah. go out and you, you like you 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 live in our society in our modern society and you get dull your knife gets dull you don't really get challenged yeah, I love I love that analogy when you that yeah. podcast you're talking about I love that analogy and you're you're so right you d- you, you know, do get dull yeah yeah and then you you go out and do these wilderness challenges and and it sharpens you and then you go back and you can cut through life so much easier because you now you have that experience behind you. And then a year goes by where you haven't been sharpened and you start to feel a little bit more tired, a little bit more stressed. Things start to get, get to you a little bit hard. And that's because you cut through life's a little bit tougher without having them, those perspective gaining experiences like those wilderness hunts are. The other thing I find is when... You go away for, and it doesn't even have to be an extended period of time. Even it can even be for a couple of days, and you're getting into it, and you're enjoying it, or you're reflecting on it. If it's somewhere like Nepal, and realizing that you did enjoy the experience, although maybe not at the time, um, is that you return to what is normality, for want of a, a better way to explain it, and you're kind of looking forward to it because you want the hot shower. But there's also a little bit of you that doesn't want to let go of what you've just left there's that conflict that always goes back on in my mind from like to and fro as I'm returning yeah. to normal life. That's just the airplane. Yeah. You think it's being a- horrible on the airplane <laughs> flying back. Yeah. You're like, yeah, take me back to the sky the tent in the mountain. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's, we're not, uh, you and I, all, all three of us are not unique in that. I mean, if you read some of the early explorers in the American West and some of the explorers of, of that continent, you'll read those same reflections. Um, the reflections of, you know, even Otto Leupold and Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot. And I mean, you can name all these people. You start reading their writings. John Muir is really good at that. I mean, you you start to read some of their writings and you see these same reflections and, and they start to treat these wilderness experiences like, you know, like gifts, you know, things that, and then that led them to want to preserve those places. And, and, that leads me to the same feeling. I feel like the preservation of that that place would allow me and everyone else to have those same experiences, and I think that makes us better humans. And I, so I don't want it to go away, and I, I don't, you know, I'd rather not uh, have my son or anyone's the next generation have less of an opportunity to go do that because it's done so much for me. Mm, yeah, it's you're 100 percent right there, and. I think we can't, it's very difficult to take that extra step and act on something to protect it if you haven't fully experienced it or understand it or to understand it because you can't then sort of carry that emotion through of what that experience is. So, I mean, you take that, the the area, the Dorpatan Hunting Reserve in, in Nepal that we've just been um, talking about there, you might, you know, people might think that it, it's great that it, 
they you know they run a ballot system and that's how and the um the the rangers they don't call them rangers there but the the guys who were there who work for the government yeah. are there to kind of stop the poaching and keep an eye on what's going on and very happy for a system like that to be in place but to truly appreciate it and understand how important it is that something like that is protect uh, protected you really have to kind of live it and be there and you know do what you've done if you look, look at tar for example there they have ballots for tar did you see any tar while you were there ben no, 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 I I was yeah, I was on the lookout for well, after the day two I was on just on the lookout for the tent. Um but, or, or the baby. <laughs> or, or the baby. Yeah, if that baby's coming back, I was like, just cue the helicopters if that baby comes back. I'm I can't deal with it. I can't deal with imaginary infants in the Himalayas. I'm, I'm not that's what I'm signed up for. But yeah, I mean I you know, snow leopards, tar, I mean just you know, even longer guyers, even those the griffins that are flying around over there. Um, all those things are like this. You, you see them, and you're like, "This is it's this." I'm not mystical, but it's this. It's just a something that you truly want to, you know, you want to keep those those there. You want to keep the habitat there. And I I understand pretty early on that I had no real way of knowing um, how to do that. Uh, and I I wouldn't be so. Uh, egotistical as an American to go over there and be like, yeah, keep the ballot system going. It seems like it's working. I was like, look, if this is the way you've determined that I can benefit by coming over here and taking part in this, I'm happy to take part. Um, and I think we err a lot of times in trying to transfer our value system and our models of conservation to these other places because their, their economics, their economic structure isn't the same. Their society and cultural structures don't, um, you know, don't function like ours do. And, you know, the, our value system, I would love for them to have that, but they don't live in a world where our value system is affordable. They can't. It's they not can't really relevant, be, is it? It's not relevant. No. You can't get up and be like, I must value this animal because it's beautiful and it provides, it's majestic. They're like, I'm real hungry and I I got to walk six days to to get a meal or I got to have that, you know. And so poaching isn't even a concept. It's just, it's just, they're so much, so much uh, a part of that landscape and the way that they live it changes, you know, conceptually how you would describe the animals and the people and how they interact. And um, I was pretty, it was pretty, I've always been pretty aware of not being so foolhardy as to say, like, our way works. You know, trophy hunting might work here, um, you know, because as you well know, the government in Nepal <laughs> is a little bit complicated. Just a tad. And uh, just seems like a bunch of people yelling at each other <laughs> when I was there. <laughs> And uh, and so, you know, I just think I wanted to appreciate it and I didn't want to overcomplicate my role in it or, or you know, have so much ego as to think that I was playing some more important role than going over there and providing some, some dollars and some jobs and telling their story as best I could. Talking about um, protection and, and conservation, but flipping it back to your home and monuments, which we alluded to probably about half an hour ago, Sure. Just if it is at all possible, um, explain what has been going on there because for here we don't have. If if you talk, talk about monu- <laughs> monuments here in the UK, people are going to think it's some sort of physical building, like a castle, uh, like or, a castle or, or something, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> explain what is meant by that. A little bit of the the history and what issue you guys are facing right now, just so that we yeah. can understand it in Europe a, a little bit with a bit more clarity. 
Yeah, I always fear that I'll butcher the facts. Uh, like That's the okay. And things here, but I get you. I'll get the concept. Whatever right. you we'll tell us, we'll believe because we don't know any better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 1342, we've. <laughs> uh, no, I think in the early night in the turn of the century, uh, I want to say 1908, um, we started to, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and a bunch of you know, visionaries in this country started to realize that they wanted to preserve some landscapes, and so. There was a bunch of ways that they did that. National forests, you know, they started the Forest Service early in the turn of the century. And it that is really the start of our conservation ideal. And that, that conservation ideal came from a bunch of, of really elitists like Teddy Roosevelt and, and John Muir that were also naturalists and hunters and, and anglers and, and appreciates the natural world. So at the turn of the century, there was a movement to to conserve these places out west that were at that time getting raped and pillaged by um, modern expansionism. And we at that time, the railroad was prevalent and refrigeration was prevalent and the growing urban um, populations in our country were demanding more food and were demanding more pretty things and buffalo hides and were, were demanding more resources from the wildlife. There's huge market hunting uh, at that time, wasn't there? Yeah, market hunting is what they'll call it, if, of mm. course. And you know, they're wholesale killing of mallard ducks, white-tailed deer, wild turkeys, Rocky Mountain elk. Uh, you know, everybody really knows and and signifies with the bison, the buffalo that mm. were killed on mass for this. I mean, you know, hundreds of feet high piles of buffalo skulls on the plains. It seems unbelievable. Uh, I've seen the pictures, but. Yeah, I still it's, can't quite fathom it. Yeah, I mean, Teddy, one of Teddy Roosevelt's writings, he, he, I believe he was in South Dakota when he wrote this, but he said, we rode for miles and miles and we were never in sight of, of a live buffalo or out of sight of a dead one. Yeah. And and then I think the next day he might have killed a buffalo or something <laughs> like that, <laughs> which, is, which is how they did it. Um, but we started to realize that the commodification of wildlife couldn't, couldn't go on and and that wilderness ideal and the ideal for conservation that um, we were talking about earlier was born then and a lot of things came of that right and so we we talk about a lot of ways that our country put together our value system and our north american model of wildlife conservation there was a lot of steps Um, one of these steps was the antiquities act which was passed um, to allow presidents to set aside certain types of land um, to be preserved as antiquities. And in the bill, there's a lot of language. And, and one piece of that language says it should be the smallest area possible to preserve that antiquity. And that antiquity, as you guys said, doesn't have to be a building or a castle or any, any type of tangible artifact. It could be a place like the Grand Canyon or a place like the Bears Ears National Monument in Utah. Um, just culturally, specifically culturally, uh, important pieces of land. Um, maybe they have an Indian burial ground. Maybe they have a significant piece of our culture within that piece of land. And the Antiquities Act was there to allow presidents specifically to declare these lands national monuments. And that's where it gets complicated because national monuments in their current form do a lot of things. Um, they provide some access. They restrict other access. Um, there's a lot of detail and minutia 
in national monuments that goes uncovered. And I probably don't have enough time to go into all that, but just say... <laughs> but you can hunt on national just, monuments. There, there's access. Yes. They're not closed areas. No, they're not closed areas. They're closed sometimes to roads. You know, it, it depends on your definition of access, right? If access is everybody can drive up to them, that's not always the case. But if access is... Can you hunt on them, draw a tag, and go take an animal? Yes, most of them, that is the case. But if not all of them, that's so the So is case. it all government-owned land? Yes. But, yeah, yeah, the federal government fact, would. Yeah. yeah, the federal government owns the land and manages the land. And um, the other thing that is often happens on this land is it is precluded from extraction. So it's precluded from gas and oil or mining of any kind. These national monuments are considered sacred, so we're not going to extract resources from them. And so... It's in that phase, like, you know, in our two political parties, the Democrats, Republicans, Republicans generally are pro-hunting, but they are also pro-extraction. They are pro-oil and gas. They are pro-industry. And on the left, you have folks that are generally not, you know, sometimes anti-hunting, but are environmentalists and preservationists. And so we kind of butted heads with our national monument system where we said the left side wants to preserve these monuments they see this as a, a an act of preservation, an act of keeping the in, industries out of these beautiful places. And the other side of the coin would then say, we want to provide access for hunting by stripping these lands of these monument designations, but also provide access to extraction for people to go in and mine or to extract oil and gas from these places. Because you're talking, in some cases, millions of acres so of lots, land that Lots now, of money. Yeah, lots of money sitting on those pieces of land. Um, and so there's so it's a very intricate argument where one side, um, it, it was a rare case in our politics where one side was like, in my community, was we're helping hunters by providing access. And the other side was like, you're hurting hunters by stealing our land. <laughs> Wait a minute. Okay. What are you talking? Somebody's lying here. Mm. Somebody's making something up somewhere. And so at the end, I mean, there was a specific... Uh, two monuments, Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monument, specifically probably Bears Ears. But pre- President Barack Obama used the Antiquities Act to preserve uh, a couple of million acres. I don't know, I can't remember the number for, for Bears Ears. But he uh, used that, I think it was three years ago, four years ago, to on his way out of office to preserve the Bears Ears National Monument. That's in Utah, and there's a lot of uh, tribal significance. It's a beautiful place. It's a pretty red rock canyons and, and those million acres. Now, when when uh, President Donald Trump comes in office, he says he asks his uh, Montana-based Secretary of Interior, who is in charge of our, our federal lands and land holdings, to do a review of all the monuments to see which ones are too big and too costly for the government and which ones could be shrunk. Um you know, according to some of the language that's in the Antiquities Act. And t- they reviewed, I believe, 21 monuments in the in Grand Staircase and Bears Ears were the two they just, they decided to reduce. And that's where the big controversy came. I see. Um, Bear, Bears Ears was reduced. Um, there, it's still in litigation. There's still a lot to, to go there, but they reduced it significantly, which took away protections. And now one side will argue... The left will argue that Donald Trump and Secretary Zinke only wanted to open up those lands for extraction. 
they don't care about access to hunting and fishing. They don't care about um, the antiquities of the land that are the present there. They don't care. They just want to open those spaces up so their buddies in oil and gas can make a bunch of money or their buddies in mining can make a bunch of money. And on the other side, you have, you know, the environmentalists who are saying that we want to protect this land and the Republicans are saying, well, these folks just want to protect all this. They want to protect way more than the federal government can afford. And they're just trying to shut land off from access to everyone because they want to preserve it. And so that's kind of the two sides of the coin. Now I'm, I'm a hunter and I like the land. And so I always, I always look at my son and the future of this country and decide, you know, what I feel on those things. And so in this case, I was like, we need, in my mind, the wilderness is not something we're going to get more of. No. It's only something that we'll get less of in, in the end of the day. Our system of pub- public lands is unique to this country in a lot of ways. Our model of conservation and wildlife stewardship is unique to this country. And those things are far more important than, um, you know, Donald Trump and Secretary Zinke and the way that they think about access and the way they think about wilderness and the way they think about extraction from those places. So. That was the argument, and it was a complicated one, and it continues today, and I'm sure it will uh, continue to pop up. And I will say that uh, the the biggest shame in all this is that Bears Ears specifically has become a political football. And so three years ago, it was one thing. Today, it's another. And maybe if a Democrat gets in office here in a couple of years, they will change it back. But that makes it very hard for the wildlife managers and the stewards of the land on the ground to do any real managing because it's always in flux on who's doing what and what they're allowed to do and what it really means. And so I think just the land loses in our politics, the people on the ground lose, the tourism dollars suffer, um, jobs suffer because two parties can't um, come to an agreement on what a designation really means and when to use it. The wildlife's not coming first anyway. No, no, I don't think so. No, nobody's making a decision. I don't think either side in this case made a decision for the with a, a conceptual and tangible best, um, and at least in my mind, a fully you know best case scenario in mind for the people on the ground and the animals on the ground and and the tribal elements and the natives, Native Americans and and, and all that. It just gets too swept up in party politics and one line against another is one of the reasons that this has been uh, so hotly debated that people are in the in the states are, are worried about this being a precedent where other monuments might then be cut down is that a concern? absolutely yeah yeah absolutely yeah absolutely because it sets how a president treats the antiquities act and the abuse of, and the abuse of the power they have from that act is a huge concern um it doesn't. I mean, obviously, here there was a veil. We we believe there was a veil of a review. This review was always meant to do one certain thing, um, and there's been some mining leases signed in and around Bears Ears. Um, there's been some talk of opening some other parts up for leasing, for mining, after the fact. And so it, it's pretty. I believe it's pretty clear that what's happening here is um, these designations are viewed as being used as political tools to achieve goals. And if it's done in this, if there's one overreach made, many others can be made. And um, this is, it's, it's, it's pretty unique in that the president can, can not unilaterally make these moves, but almost unilaterally make these moves and change these, these uh, designations. Mm -hmm. 
We're just gonna have to uh, watch that one space. Man, one man. It's yeah. Yeah. Now I understand. It's, it's now I understand why all my <laughs> why all our American friends have been so hot under the collar. Yeah. Well, it's it's we all know. Like I know specifically that there is something at that at play here, and hopefully you guys come over and experience it at some point. That 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 we have a model of conservation that worked. You know, specific to how we treat wildlife and wild lands and it has worked in spades i mean we have 640 million acres of places i'm standing in bozeman montana i could get in my truck right now and go explore millions millions of acres in the gallatin national forest and yellowstone national park and explore those places almost without you know encumbrance so that that feeling waking up in the morning to that feeling knowing that that mountain over there is accessible to you and anyone else is unique and there's a lot of this is just one detail in a larger fight that's been going on ever since the turn of the century when these ideas came to be is that you know there's one side that sees the short-term gain of the extraction of resources and privatization of land and one side that that sees the long-term gain um, of allowing it to be public and then those things are twisted around a good bit and then but that's that's what it means to me and and not all access is good. Not all access is bad. Um, you know, like I said, some people see access as cutting roads through wilderness. Other people see access is allowing people in on foot and on foot only. And so there's a lot of nuance in the conversation, but I think for folks like me and everybody you, you guys know in the States, we're all just fighting to keep the thing, the ideals that we've had for a century going in the best way we can. And that's, it, it's complicated. It took a, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to set it up in the States. And it was all originally for the protection of wildlife. So I hope that that's never the, the sight of that is never lost. I think that needs to be the key. Yeah, I mean, if you look at very briefly, look at Texas. You know, Texas is, I believe, ninety eight percent private, privately owned. And in our in our model of conservation, we say specifically that wildlife is held in trust by the states, but it is owned by the people. Which means that we trust the states to manage this wildlife. Um, using science and biology to tell us how many we how many animals we can kill and what keeps a healthy population and and for them to be stewards of the land but they do not own it they do not own the wildlife um, the people do and in Texas um, where most of the land is private and there are high fences some of the wildlife is not free to go as it as it pleases from one place to another and the privatization of wildlife while it may be good in small chunks, um, I don't believe is good for the, you know, the greater soul of our country and, and those wildlife populations. So, um, we have one example, and I lived there for four years of a place where there's not much accessible land. Uh, there's not much accessible wildlife. You have to know someone or pay a large fee to get a lease to go and hunt. And so I've lived in that reality. Um, and I am now live in a reality where I can take my son and go up to the mountain and chase elk. If, if I have a, a license that's pretty cheap and a tag to do so, I can roam as I please. And that's a big deal. It's interesting because uh, we were speaking to Tyler about this when uh, Tyler Sharp, when he was over. Um, I think we were talking about on the podcast, ago. actually. Yeah, we think we did talk about it on the yeah. podcast. 
uh, the, the podcast that got corrupted. Yeah, that, I know that, you've had a very similar that, experience. That, 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 that podcast. Oh, that, that podcast. <laughs> thank God you had the same problem. Oh, we My did. God. <laughs> oh, yeah. After three, uh, we're going to get on to talking about your podcast actually. But after three years of podcasting, it was the first, the first time, time it's it ever, ever happened. happened. Oh. And it was with Tyler, <laughs> and it was it was it was the best podcast we've ever. ever recorded, and will ever record. Well, <laughs> I've, 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 I've. I've I can't wait to listen to it. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was, it was, it was about two and a half hours long. It was a long and, podcast, and we clicked. Oh, wow. We clicked. It's not like we hadn't even remembered to press record. We had. We pressed it, and normally you get the little old egg timer that comes up on the the, the audio recording. Nothing. That was it. Didn't exist. So. Oh boy. So yeah, we talked about oh, it boy. on that podcast, and then I actually Tyler was staying at my house. So later on that night. With lots of with a beer and quite a lot of whiskey, we recorded another. Probably one. as late as it is now. Actually. <laughs> yeah, it probably was <laughs> as late as it was now. Uh, but anyway, in in that podcast, which I think was actually the, the original one that no one will ever get to hear, and I referenced in that podcast with him that we did get recorded. I actually referenced your one because I think you did. Was was it with Steve Ranella that your yes. yeah, <laughs> and it made me chuckle when you were talking about losing it, and then uh, <laughs> I, I guess I basically I deserve what I got. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, well, at least you guys got to do what I did yeah, and exactly. re-record it, yeah. and then reference back to the the never to be listened yeah. to podcast. It was quite amusing. One. Yeah, um, but in, anyway, well, in in that one, we were explaining to Tyler about our land use here, and the reason I bring this up is because it's quite interesting. You're, you're talking about Texas there and the, the very large percentage of private ownership, but the inaccessibility, or not without forking out a lot of money. And we have a, a kind of a reverse here where we have almost entirely um, private land, but we have fantastic access in Scotland because although it's private, there is a right to roam. So in terms of you know walking around, seeing wildlife, there's camping, not really camping, whatever. Yeah, there's not really any high fences here at all. There are in a few places like round plantations to stop deer eating trees. But you and can climb them if you want, and you can go through the gates. Yeah. So <laughs> we have mass private land ownership, but really well well, access everywhere for everything apart from hunting but the hunting access is almost everywhere but you have to pay for it but it's not massive sums of money it's fairly modest modest amounts there's nowhere really shut down you just phone up an estate office and say do you have a spare i'd like to go come and hunt a stag this this year is there spare weeks yeah so it's it's strange and it works really well here but we're a small island compared to you so like you were saying right back at the start that not all models work in all places but there's a lot that people can can learn from one another it's an example of something that does work and i've actually written an article about it for the next issue of modern huntsman but yeah i I, i'd like i can't wait for that issue just because i know and working with tyler Mm. a little bit on it that it does touch on some of the perspective there are you writing it? and i will say i was going to uh i have a new venture that kept me from doing so sure. but uh i had an aim to do to do that but i i think that i always you know we get so wrapped up in public lands and it's a neat and tidy narrative here right public lands it's like american freedom da 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 apple pie eagles american freedom public lands and that's nice and it it, it really is something i believe in strongly but at the same time pri- private land owners especially out here in the west do some of the best wildlife stewardship there is because they you know, because they have control over their lands and the control over their habitat and public lands, you know, are expensive to manage. And, and with, like we were saying earlier, with a lot of people traveling through there or with, with these open lands, there can be challenges to manage them. So we have to 
we have to be not so foolish as to say like everything should be public, nothing should be private. We should understand that both those things, you know, for hunters especially, should be present. Um, and both those things are required. And so I think everyone here knows that. But sometimes when you get caught up like we are in the States right now in a public land, you know, real trendy um, time, that we should always remember that, you know, public lands and access are good things. But we should we should be very mindful of how that happens and not getting too far down the the keep it public rabbit hole because it can be dangerous. Yeah, I think you're right. And and it comes down to just understand it, but keep, keep an open mind and don't be so narrow minded on a single tagline. One of the things, and I know that it's something you've discussed before in the hunting space where we've got to a point where we understand as a community, generally speaking globally, that we need to, make what we do more understandable to the the general public and so by in in doing that we've kind of tagged on to the well hunting is hunting has to be conservation because that's how how we justify it and we could talk forever about all the great examples of that you've been talking about the north america model which is one example that has worked tremendously well bringing back many many species from the brink of extinction to flourishing today uh and you you can look at examples in in south africa and other parts of the, the world where that holds true but i've and i've said this quite a few times and we've talked about it on the podcast quite a few times that that kind of line is becoming increasingly disingenuous because people are saying it as a reflex rather than really thinking about it and meaning it is that i know that's something that you've seen as well yeah for sure um i'm always wary of like the absence of nuance in, in these conversations like the absence of the the feeling to boil these complicated issues down into taglines and hashtags and things that we say because if you really what i found with folks that don't hunt if you run into an intellectually curious person who has never hunted some of their rather you know school age questions their innocuous questions become hard to answer because you've never thought about it that way before. you just like, oh, I'm just going to spit out. Well, hunting is conservation. Well, why? Well, because, you know, conservation dollars, they're like, what do you mean? And you, you get to this this lack of knowledge from, from a non-hunter's point of view turns into this. You can't just spit out to them the party lines. Because you have to have thought through why you personally are doing things and then why your group is doing things. And then the, the question that will be... Um, important throughout the world not just my country or yours is is this thing hunting a benefit to our society and to our people and to our animals you know that's the question that we're always trying to answer so if we if in answering that question we're just spitting out manufactured gibberish then we're going to lose always because all it takes is just a few more deeper questions and folks will find that we maybe have not thought it out like we should have yeah because uh, unfortunately the three of us have chosen a profession and a, and a hobby or a lifestyle that includes killing other things. <laughs> and and we, we're not golfing or swimming or shooting up hoop. We're, we're going out and taking from nature something we didn't put there. So we, we owe more depth of thought. We owe uh, 
a lot more than just coming up with a hashtag or some party line that um, makes us feel real good. We we got to do more than that. Hmm. I mean, where I've, I've not just uh, not just in the states, but I've seen it in the UK too. Even major organizations fairly guilty of it, where not really putting much sub much substance behind the statements and almost relying on the fact that the people who are members must be doing something so it's okay yeah you know hunting hunting's all good (laughs) always (laughs) well i mean i i think um at some level conservation is is also marketing you know most of the conservation groups are trying to attract members to their group very true and and so in, in in attracting members to groups in any whether it's conservation or really any form of um, organization at all is you're trying to simplify the message so someone can take it up and give you a little bit of money. Um, that's what they're trying to do. And, and there's folks in each one of these organizations in our country that are, that are there to market a message. And the more complicated that message, the more time it takes for somebody to invest in it, the less you're likely going to get uh, membership growth. And they get in, these things become businesses. Yeah, they're not for profit, but their business is all the same. And so it's complicated. Um, and what that uh, what that means is that folks that are members of these organizations have to call upon the organization to be better and not just to market and not just to come up with catchy photo contests and give away products and, um, you know, have awesome little hashtags and beer nights and do more than that because that's not what the well what we're here to do um we're here to do more than that so yeah i think it's uh, it's on us to call for these organizations to do more and not accept hunting as conservation or keep it public as as our you know as the center point of the conversation because that's not it it has to be more than words yeah yeah, and I think it is. And to I a think, no, I, I, yeah, I was just going to say that I think there are some good examples, and there are a lot of people doing great, even if it's just informational, even if it's con- just, uh, you know, conversations like we're having so that people can think in a little bit more depth. It is happening. You know, we are, I, I genuinely believe that in the last couple of years we've seen the rise of a wave of change you know we you look at yeah. you know the podcasts like your podcast the hunting collective you know, obviously um steve Renella and those guys have been on the go for a long time but you see how that's becoming a bit more mainstream it's on netflix people are listening to to all the, the millions of people that listen to joe rogan and you you know you're on his show so is steve it's you've got modern huntsman out which is a a kind of a new wave of hunting being really thought about at the granular level back to basics what does it and what should it mean yeah i think you know i always thought about that as this reaction to a problem um like this pushed in a corner feeling i think my generation i'm 32 um my generation in the states here is different than the generation that came before us because we're now have to answer the question, why do you hunt? And we're the first generation to openly have to answer that question um, and do it all the time, do it every day. Every time you kill an animal, you have to answer that question uh, to yourself and to the people around you and to the people that you interact with. And my father's generation almost never had to answer that question. No justification needed. Yeah, it's not like public, hunting's part of our culture. Publicly, you know. Yeah, not publicly because social media didn't exist, one and two. 
you know, it was a part of the culture in a lot of uh, rural parts of America and suburban parts of America. And, you know, we're in a position now where everybody can see everything and we all have the opportunity to tell our story. And I, well, I feel the obligation to tell our story. And so, you know, we're just living in a different time. And so I think my generation has kind of been pushed up against the wall and is, has to react, has to punch out a little bit of, of some of the more negative stereotypes that were allowed to go on. And so, you know, I think Steve's involvement in hunting and mine and Joe Rogan's and, and you guys and everybody that are um, thinking a little bit deeper, you know, Tyler Sharp and Charles Post, and, and I think it's a reaction, you know, it's a cure to, a, to an ill, uh, if I could say it that way. Uh, I, that's, I believe that everybody started to see, oh my gosh, our society is changing and becoming more urban and we're getting regulated to the sidelines because no one was able to, has able been able to articulate this in a way that everyone can understand. And mm. so, yeah, we've been, I think we're bad in, at that <laughs> historically. Yeah, we have been bad at that. And uh, because, but, but I don't blame anyone for being bad at that because our world has changed so rapidly. We've just now found ourselves with uh, a platform to tell our story and really no history of telling it other than, you know, talking amongst ourselves on outdoor TV or outdoor publications and things like that. So we're just in that transition. We're in the middle of it. And to recognize that transition is, I think, the first step. Do you, do you know what what is interesting, though, is you look at America, UK, places in Europe, we're all facing the same problems. All of them are facing problems very similar, be it land or or regulation of hunting, or firearms, or all these things. All of these countries spread across the planet are all facing very similar issues. Yeah, it's yeah. That's what I've 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 always tried to find like those little threads that you can pull on, and I think that as our world progresses, it's moving away from what we do. You know, it's just, it's just precipitously moving away from all the things we're talking about. It's getting more comfortable. You know, it's getting... It's becoming more urban. Uh, more, yeah, becoming more urban, more technical, more comfortable, more soft, um, you know, more, way more connected and less disconnected. And so I think we're just going through that transition and learning how to communicate with each other in this new time. I do think, though, and I think that's where you guys have found success and, and guys like Renella have found success, is that it's creating this void of people that are living in the suburbs, living in urban environments that thirst for the things that we're talking about that realize that there's this like rugged individualism that they're missing out on because of where they live and the generation that they're being brought up in so i think we can capitalize on that not that not that we you know we need to treat it like we're capitalizing on it but we're just recognizing that 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 will happen people will you know thirst to get outside and do challenge themselves and if we're if we're out there explaining what we do and why we do it and they somehow connect to us and then then go down to their own path of hunting, then we'll have a whole new generation of hunters that learned a different way. And uh, that's what I hope that we're doing. Yeah, I'm sure your experience will be similar to ours here, but I, we always find that when you have the discussions with people who are just fairly open-minded and have no particular opinion one way or the other, that they do want to understand that kind of way of life people are which curious. is more simple more stripped yeah. back a little bit more primitive because most people do realize that we all came from that 
at some point. And this is a little part of our past that we're holding on to. And there's it done right. There's nothing wrong with it. And it, if anything, and I, I, it's something that started here, but I know it, I, sorry, it didn't start here. It's starting here, but started more in the States is that the locavore movement where people want to have locally sourced meat, yeah. you know, that is carrying through to the, to the, the hunting fields where yeah. people who wouldn't traditionally have been seen as a hunter want to understand that way of life because they want to know where their food has come from. And a lot of it, we, you know, we can have the discussions about um, trophy hunting, if we want to call it that, and the, the reasons why people do it. But for the average man on the street who is not fussed one way or the other, they understand that. Yeah. Yeah, they do. But I think the trophy anything now, as the trophy anything goes forward, it's just like same. We have the same in our gun culture. There's like this large reactionary piece that ser- serves only to distract us. Like every time some young lady shoots a lion, you know. Sometimes this last time it happened, I can't remember the young lady's name, but she shot a lion, and a year later there was an outrage. Celebrities were upset. A year later, um, it's so. I looked at that and I looked really hard at it and I wanted to write a bunch of like, oh, here's why this was good or here's why this makes sense. And I thought, fuck that. Like, that's just a distraction that somebody put together to anger people and move them for a cause or move them to action for, for animal rights. And and that's that's just, for me, the, anybody that would listen to that probably won't listen to me. Our, our, our media really likes it if it's an American that does it. Yeah, an yeah, American we, woman. We love it. An yeah. American woman. That is the, like, that well, is the ultimate for our media over here. If if they catch someone doing something like that, yeah. But, even if it was like four years ago, yeah. Oh, yeah. They don't right. know. We found the photo. It doesn't even matter if they pulled the trigger. If they're behind it, <laughs> yeah. It's such a sad like value of life situation because we, we get it here in the states too with guns. Um, if there's a mass shooting that is performed using the guns that we don't like that we want to ban, it's a big deal. And if there's a mass shooting using the guns that we feel like we're okay with and aren't so dangerous, it's not as big a deal. Um, and I, it's the same way with hunting. If if a young American blonde with uh, cleavage and a nice rifle shoots a lion, hunters are terrible. Uh, if that's not happening, no one cares uh, on those levels. So I think there's this, like, this mass distractionary culture that only serves to steer us away from our important conversations for moments to get angry and fight. And so I just, I'm not going to fight that anymore because there's no part of that conversation that really matters. Uh, So have you tried to remove yourself away from uh, getting involved in those kind of debates online or is that something you've never really done? I've done it, man. If you can search my name and articles I've written in the past, I mean, I wrote articles on rhino hunting. When Corey Knowlton did it, I wrote an article on Melissa Bachman. When she did it, um, I, I was deep into that. And I remember being on, in the comment threads on the articles that I wrote and just having these arguments and thinking I could solve it and spending a lot of time and energy doing that. And I've since realized that 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 is part of our culture that seeks to anger me and distract me from the, the thing that I do, which isn't killing lions <laughs> at <laughs> all. Not, I don't want to kill a lion, I don't. That, but I'm a hunter. And so... I just the best I can do with that is at this point ignore it because it's just replaying the same narrative over and over and over again. 
Um, both sides do it to achieve goals, to get people emotional and get them to act. And um, I find that with my podcast, and I'm sure with yours, if you just continue to tell your story from your perspective and uncover, you know, truths that are around you, that people will, you know, be more engaged in that in the long term rather than just sensationalize stuff and get them commenting. Definitely. I, we, we've we certainly found um, that this kind of long-form discussion where we can dig into topics and, and explain and articulate yourself through with a bit of time. The amount of emails that we get from non-hunters who have come onto the show, who have taken the time, these are just the, the ones who have taken the time to actually write an email to say they understand something better or they're more open-minded to it now because of a particular guest. It's, it's very often because of a particular guest that you've had on. Is amazing, and whenever I get something like that in my inbox, it gives me hope. It gives me a lot of hope that, yeah. you know, bit by bit, as everybody's playing their part, whether it's a conversation in a supermarket, around a dinner table, it's someone listening to your podcast, our podcast, bit by bit, it is, if when done right, with the with the right honesty about you know what we do as hunters, people can change their mind, or if at least not change their mind. Not be objective, uh, not object to it. Oh, the the, bo- yeah. the bottom line: pe- people, they're not they're not stupid, and and they want to find out the information. On the whole, people aren't stupid. There are some very stupid people out there, <laughs> but on the whole, people are not. And the, if the information is given to them and they can access it, they can. People can generally tell if someone's giving them a bullshit bullshit story story yeah. or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, and espe- yeah. especially over a podcast or something like that, you yeah. can you can tell the people. You can only bullshit are. for so long. Yeah, yeah. There is, and you, you get caught out eventually <laughs> yeah. with the questions. So I could give you a lot of. I could give you a couple hours. Of well, you've done a good job so far. Then, yeah, I'm good at that. No, I, I agree with that. I, I I find myself very happy to have found hunting in the way that I found it. You know, and very happy to have had it do enrich my life the way it has and um if i didn't have that starting point i don't know where i would be in life you know i think about that daily um and i think that's what amazes me that when when i try to just kind of churn up that enriching happy feeling and put it out my best way i know how um and you get an email like you guys likely get that's six pages long that's telling someone's entire life story and the effect you've had on that and what it means to them going forward. And you've like relayed a little bit of, of your experience and their feeling the thing that you feel when you wake up. Um, that's cool. And that's, that's all I'd ever want to do. And when people say, how many downloads you get? I do look at that. I'm not going to lie, but I don't, but I don't live and die by it. I live and die by those emails and those messages on Instagram and those, um, you know, people that stop me and say, "Hey, man, this is well, I really love what you're doing," and I think that's the that's we live in a great time where people can distract us with um, disenfranchising, angry messages about lines, but we also live in a great time where um, you can have a, a conversation like this with many thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, and hopefully um, impart what you know to them in the best way you can. So, I mean, we're it's two sides of the coin, and I think for the hunting world, if we just focus on the positive side of the coin and stay there and continue to talk, we have the right message. I mean, we have a very um, powerful thing that we do 
on a lot of levels. So we just need to ride that out and stop stop being so distracted by some of the some of the things people would have us debate about. Talking of podcasting, you in the podcasting space, it feels like you've kind of been there forever, but you haven't because it's the Hunting Collective is fairly new, but you've had some incredible guests and I have to say for podcasts arriving on the scene day one podcast one i think you nailed pretty much everything about spot on uh, the, the logo the look the feel oh, i love the graphics by the way they're really Graphic, cool graphics are yeah. great but i'm trying to work out whether we should start talking about that before getting a bit of backstory of yourself um i feel like we should backstory. rewind time for rewind. so yeah. we're going to talk about the podcast the hunting collective but Give me a bit of your backstory, because I think, although quite a few of our listeners will have probably heard your name, they probably follow you on Instagram, may very well listen to your podcast, because we've plugged it quite a few times, but probably don't know that you were an editor of a magazine, if we go back to that point in your life. How did that come about, and what was... I mean, that must have been pretty formative, in terms of how you... The people that you met, that network, how you formed your ideas, moving forward to Yeti, and you know what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I was always wanted to be a writer uh, as a as a youngster, and I always wanted to be a journalist. I kind of always saw myself as that, and pretty quickly in my career, I found myself right out of college um, working for American Hunter Magazine at the NRA, so at the NRA headquarters every day, working as a digital editor for American Hunter Magazine, and realizing that a guy could... Um, be in an industry where he could hunt, write about it, and people would read it. And I, I remember, and you'd get paid, <laughs> and somebody would pay me. And Crazy. I thought, well, this, well, they'll shut this down pretty quick. They'll realize I'm having a great, they'll have, they'll realize I'm having a great time, and they'll just quit paying me. Um, <laughs> so I remember having first, my first thought was like, I went on an antelope hunt out west in Wyoming when I was maybe 23 for my first industry trip, and I realized that that was a reality. And, um, man, it seems like so long ago, it was only 10 years ago, 11 years ago, and pretty quickly realized that this was like this intersection of all the things that I wanted to do, writing, journalism, hunting, this intersection in a great way where I could have my own experiences and convey those experiences. And unlike maybe a sports writer, which I I thought maybe I wanted to be at some point, I didn't have to write about someone else's experiences and rely only on that form of communication. And so... I figured that out pretty quick, and then I got recruited to go be uh, a part of Peterson's Hunting Magazine pretty, about th- after about three years at the NRA, in which time I got to do some amazing hunting things. Um, and that only continued as I went to Peterson's and ran their digital operation for a long time as an editor, and then went on to be uh, executive editor of the magazine, working under Mike Scobie. Uh, and putting together the the day to day, Mike's a fun magazine. Guy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You won't forget Mike. <laughs> out with him. Can you imagine hanging out with Mike Scobie for like every day for years? Uh, uh, well, you can imagine the, sto- just the stories as a, I have. Just as a, <laughs> I can only fathom. Just as a, a very brief side note to your history, Mike was here last year uh, hunting in the Highlands on an event that we were filming for Rigby. And he went out with Daryl and someone else that day to go stalking. And he went stalking in a tuxedo and a kilt. On a kilt, yeah. 
Um, yep. We try yep. to tell them that, you know, we typically don't really do that kind of thing here, but... <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason I came back from Hunt last week and I was covered in ticks on my legs and I was wearing trousers. You can imagine what it's like <laughs> when you've got um, <laughs> just well, a, just a kill. <laughs> yes, well, he's a, he's a man that likes to let it fly. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, so that, carry on, that, carry on, Ben. So that's yes, yes. the anecdote to Mike Scobie. <laughs> yes. Um, what was I talking about? Now I'm thinking about Mike Scobie in a kilt. <laughs> I can't even remember what I was talking about. Something certainly important. I, Mike Mike hired me into that, and um, I was able to do a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, I traveled to Bulgaria as a writer. I traveled to the Dominican Republic. Traveled all over the West to Canada, pretty much every province in Canada. Um, as a writer, and just writing about my experiences, making relationships in the hunting world, and um, quickly realizing, like, I'm 26, 27 years old, and I feel like I'm maybe at the pinnacle. <laughs> I'm not really sure... Not really sure if this could get any better than what I'm doing now. Because my last fall, it would have been about five years ago, my last fall at Peterson's as a, as one of the editors, I did a cover shoot with Joe Rogan and met him and went moose hunting in British Columbia. I shot, I think, two elk and a mule deer, hunted all over the West. It was an epic um, cover shoot, that, by the way. I know exactly the yeah. picture you're talking about. I love that. Yeah, and that was a deal where... Uh, we just it was kind of my brainchild and we went up there on this hunt and we I had this other idea about what the cover shoot would be and we ended up doing that shot as a last minute deal and then when we saw it on the page we're like oh my gosh that may be the best you know for all that it is the best cover that I've ever seen or been a part of just um, just to describe it to people there's Joe Rogan looking nails and just how Joe Rogan looks uh, with a big slab, what was it? A yeah. Haunch of elk? Or what was he, it? I, I think he yeah. shared it, it recently. Actually. A moose. He shared it again fairly recently. Yeah. It's just a, such yeah. a cool picture. And I, I wish, I really wish that an editor here in the UK would have the balls to put something like that because there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And yeah, I that's, wish someone that's would have. We... And I've I've sent pictures. I, not, I think I'm not sure if I'd seen that picture at the time. I probably had. Uh, and there, there was a great picture that I had of a hunt in um, in Sweden, and it was uh, a friend of mine holding the heart of a moose, of a huge moose, in his hands after after the hunt, and it kind of had a similar feel. And I really wish yeah. that had made the front cover because you know it, there was a great story there, and it, people could have dug into it off the front cover. But I've never ever seen in this country a front cover with a slab of meat on someone's shoulder in that kind of hunting context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we we did a, a cover the year before that, and we called it the Meat Eater Edition, where it was just a bloody hand and a knife and a piece of backstrap. Another that was one, the whole yeah, on white. And when we did that, we got a lot of we got feedback from some of the top media critics that this is like, oh, it's very brave, and you know we you know, thought highly of that, and so we decided, well, this must be this kind of messaging has to resonate because it's just it's a huge part of what we do, but it's it's being it's so glossed over, um, and we got a lot of we got a lot of negative feedback like, why don't you just put a cooked venison steak on the cover with some carrots and vegetables and make it look really nice? We said. Because that's not real. Yeah. Like it's one part of the journey, but there's a huge touch point. It's the when end. You do, yeah. yeah, when you do like ten, ten to twelve covers a year, and they all have big antlered animals on them, you start to realize like we're focusing on one particular part of the experience here. Maybe 
I didn't feel like it was very revolutionary at the time. I just said, like, maybe we'll focus on a different part of it. And um, because hunting is such a traditional pursuit here, anything that, you know, radically goes against showing big antlers and wide open spaces on a cover like in a magazine like Peterson seems to be revolutionary where really is just a depiction of of what we we go through at some level and so yeah that was that was and that's a good segue to when I was on that hunt with Joe Joe and I had never met in person before we spent you know six days hunting moose together and had a great time it was a hunt of my life I mean I can't I can remember not I can remember forgetting to look for moose because we were laughing so hard and like him just like slinging jokes and I just couldn't breathe for hours on it. <laughs> and we hit it off really, really well. Um, and the photographer, Sam Soholt was the first time I'd met him and him and I are great friends now and have done a lot of adventuring together. Um, and I just remember the truck being full of just like, this is the, you know, the best crew we've ever had. And it was just so much fun. And about halfway through the hunt, Joe started saying, you should podcast, man. You're a funny dude. You know, you should podcast. And I remember thinking, man, I'm an editor of a magazine, dude. I don't, what's a podcast? Podcast <laughs> is nothing. You know, that's like just fellas in their basement talking into a microphone. <laughs> in, in their mom's if, basement. Oh, <laughs> yeah, their mom's basement. <laughs> and if only I would have freaking listened to Joe Rogan five years ago, yeah. Yeah. I, I would have been well further down the line. And you'd have 30 um, million people downloading every week. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure. That, yeah, of course. That would be, yep, exactly. Um, it, But he was, you know, his, his podcast was just then starting to get you know, some traction. Hmm. And, it, and by traction, I mean like a couple million million downloads per <laughs> episode few, or whatever, which yeah. is just a few. And so I remember talking to Sam when the when we were bunking together. And I'm like, dude, I'm doing it. I'm starting a podcast. I'm going to do it. I told my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, I'm going to do it. And then I went back to Editor Life, and I got an offer at Yeti. And I didn't. I, I just never followed through with this idea to do a podcast. Um, and in some ways, I'm I, – I'm, that upsets me to think about, but other ways I don't know that I've been prepared enough and have thought through some of the things I know know now enough to have a podcast that so was entertaining back then. So it was probably a good thing. But then uh, after that fall, I got offered a job at Yeti. To at that at that point it was a fairly upstart company, and they were a hunting, fishing, cooler company, and wanted somebody to run their hunting operations and be, you know, kind of the face of their operation in the hunting world and and connect with all their ambassadors and all their influencers and be a part of the space and kind of be that go between between the hunting world and their their company. And at, so at that point in their in the Yeti history, that must have been very exciting knowing where they are now and how rapid that must have been. That must yeah. have been something else. It was it was uh, in leaving there, uh, which I did recently. I, I reflected on that a lot and I remember thinking when I got there, that it's not, this doesn't seem real. You know, it's this, this Austin, Texas is ultra cool town with a lot of famous people hanging around, a lot of music, a lot of entertainment, a lot of great food. And then you plunk this cool upstart product company with a lot of growth and a lot of excitement and a lot of cool people. And, and we just let it fly for about two years. And we had this, grand honeymoon where we could pretty much do whatever we wanted and it all worked and and we were able to 
to do things that I don't think anybody would ever conceived of as far as from the company standpoint, but then on a personal level. Um, and we had fun doing it and a lot of good people evolved along the way. And it was kind of a whirlwind that when I look back on, it, I'm like, man, I wish I would have appreciated that while it was happening. Um, but we were just having too much fun and, and really, you know, living the life that the company started to extol and talk about hunting all over the world and, talking about our coolers and taking them places where no one else would go and and really living the thing that that we were preaching and so it was it was a great time and it was uh it was a time that kind of shaped me more than I'll ever probably give it credit for but um I'm happy about that I look back on those that time at Yeti and it was I would say it was formative for me in the hunting space getting to meet a lot of my idols getting to um expand my universe in that way and and hunt you know with more than just joe rogan and and people like steve ranella and people like cam haynes and and get to know people like john dudley and remy warren and these people that as i came to find by knowing them you know personally were so much better at hunting than me (laughs) 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 it's so so much better um and gave me so much more perspective of what i needed to do and and my place in 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 hunting mm. um but and so it it really set it up for me to to know more about you know what I wanted to do and all those names that you've mentioned I'd say have all been also at the forefront of kind of rewriting this new narrative that we are telling here on this podcast on your podcast in writings all of those all of those names are, have definitely been responsible for helping to carry people through yeah no you're right you're right um and there's something in that that's valuable and i did we did my last really yeti hunt that i was able to organize was with all those guys you know with adam greentree with joe rogan with john dudley and um remy and and myself and and Sam Soholt and we got to I knew I was leaving at that point and I just wanted to do my best to get these people together and tell them personally but also let the world uh hunting world see one that they're great people and two um they all care and and they all in my eyes are deserving of what they of the attention they've gotten and have done well by getting that attention so that was you know I'll never be able to to repay Yeti or the people that worked at Yeti for the chance to represent hunting in the way that I got to represent it and, and call attention to those people that I felt like deserved, deserved the attention. We've always said you know, over the last couple of years, uh, as we've, as we formed our, our company, our, our filmmaking business and started to look at what there was out there that, the Yeti storytelling and films are some of the best out there. And you, you were at the reins when a lot of that was going on. But at the yeah. time... I can't say the reins. Well, you were, you were there. I was there. <laughs> I was in the room. <laughs> you, 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 were, you were playing, playing a, a serious part. You were sure, Ben O'Brien, sure. Mr. I'll Yeti. Give, <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> give you that. You know, and apart from Sitka... I can't think of any other organization, company, TV channel, with the exception of, but it's a very different type of thing. The Meat Eater series is a very different type of filmmaking. Uh, that yeah. we're doing anything like that, that kind of super high-end production, 
great, great stories. Where did that momentum come from? Because at the time, it must have been quite a bold move because doing that's not inexpensive. No. No, yeah, you're right. You're thinking right on that one. Um, I think it came from, you know, our VP of marketing at the time was Corey Maynard. And Corey Maynard had come from Gerber and kind of worked on the Hello Trouble campaign and some different things there at, at Gerber. Not the baby food, the knives, of course. Um, <laughs> and and uh, there's some jokes in there. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll keep it serious. Uh, I But the, here's a guy that had this idea to be storytellers. I mean, he was looking at Red Bull and looking at Patagonia. And look at these companies that were able to tell stories first and do so in a way that kind of spoke to not their product, but why they existed in the first place. Um, and when I went to interview there, that's pretty much what they said to me. And as a, and I was like, well, marketing's the enemy of journalism, so I don't want to be a marketer. But the way that they pitched that position to me was very much, hey, we're going to be storytellers and want to tell that story. And the first time we did that, the first film that we did was about a rafting trip down the Grand Canyon and one of the head guides. Um, I can't remember the name of the film. It escapes me. I'll think of it. Um, but it was the first film that we did. And it wasn't a hunting film. It was it was very much just about people and relationships and this place. And we went and filmed it. Um, and folks came back. And I remember sitting in a conference room at Yeti and watching this film and thinking, There's, we're on to something here. I remember looking at Corey and being like, this is amazing, man. we got to do more of these. Um, and he was already well ahead of me on that. <laughs> And so there was uh, a great leap of faith to spend the money. It's no small chunk of change to to, to do these films, um, to 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 really have a tangible way to talk to the people that we knew wanted to hear from us and the people we wanted to talk to. Um, and there's real fancy marketing terms for that, but it was really just like, who is the guy we care about? Who is who do we idolize, and who idolizes our product? And, and let's go find and tell those stories. And um, it was a fun time. We we did, I don't know how many Yeti films we did in my time there, but it felt like everyone that came out got better and better and better. They did, yeah. And they, were, and they would be on these disparate, very disparate subject matters. Like, oh, we're doing a kayak race in the South Texas. Oh, we're doing a, you know, a ranch, a cowboy, uh, a working cow ranch in hawaii oh we're doing a hunt in nepal oh we're doing a duck hunter in missouri i mean there's just all these disparate stories that felt connected and that's what we wanted to do we wanted at the end of the day we wanted all these people that shared values and didn't know it to have yeti in common Mm. and i think it worked hopefully we 100 percent. hopefully we achieved it well funny enough uh i mean the first time that we spoke which was just a weird quirk of fate was I was when it was when you were still at Yeti and I asked you, I got contact details for you um, and asked if we could show Arctic Red at our film festival. Um, yeah. And that along with the, the, our, the Carter Andrews short that you did are probably my two favorite Yeti films, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's a list of them. I, I, in my leaving, you know, and even doing my podcast now, I keep like I feel like drawn to the characters that we covered in those films. You know, whether I was part of every film or not, I, would, I, I just was drawn to those people and the way those stories were told. And um, you know, at the end of the day, for me, that's what it's about. It's like that. There's this story. Everybody's got a story, 
And uh, the more stories you hear and the more you get to take in, the more you become a little more worldly, a little better of a person for having heard it. And there's a lot of, you know, that Arctic Red, I think, was the first one in the hunting space that we did that I really felt hit the right notes. That was you know, beautiful. I really felt like, yeah, I felt like it was beautiful. It was, you know, reverent. It was The message was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the 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 quote in there from Tavis, Mullen, uh, Tavis about reading the, a book every chapter at a time. Yeah. Um, I like when I heard that the first time I was like, "Oh my god, this guy's a genius." <laughs> and and uh, and you know, all props to Mark Seacat and his crew at Seacat Creative who really, I mean, these are the guys who do all the work. We just sit back and take the take it in and and uh, adjust it a little bit and put it out to the public, but you know, that was the first time I really felt like we did we had achieved something in the hunting space. But by that time, I really wasn't concerned just with the hunting space. I just knew that this message was important for everybody that liked to go outside and, you know, like grit and like personality and like soul and, and just, you know, like a good story. As you rightly say, a, a lot of the the cinema comes down to the the skill and the vision of the, the directors and, and the, the film, the production company that are there. But the fact that the team at Yeti were responsible for coughing up the money and pushing it forward and say, we need to do this. Let's create these ideas. I think really pulled forward the, uh, the type and level of filming in the hunting and outdoor space, you know, over the last three or four years, I'm pretty confident that what Yeti were putting out during that period and are still is responsible for this kind of lift. It's it's also in the message. It's also crazy how like amazing the films are, and you're selling coolers. That, I mean, that's the bottom line. Of <laughs> there it. is that too. That, yeah. that is the bottom line. You guys like plastic boxes? Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's go. <laughs> They're pretty expensive. Yeah. I, that's like once you get in that environment, you know, I would give all shout out for those films too. To you know, Corey Maynard, who I mentioned, is a guy named Scott Ballou that is a, the producer of those films back at Yeti, and um. You know, those guys are really the masterminds behind a lot of it. And it really was when you're doing, when you're working on that stuff and your job is a marketer for a cooler company, you forget that you're a marketer for a cooler company for a time. You know, you're you're just thinking about that story and you're thinking about that person. You're selling life. About these. Yeah, man. And you're, you're, you're not, we never in creating those films, anyone that I was ever involved in, we never, we never, sat and thought how many coolers were we going to sell because of this film and we never thought how much how much uh, how much traffic do we need to get we never thought how many conversions do we need to get we just thought we need to make a good film here and move people and if they're moved you know they'll feel what we feel and they'll be drawn to our product if if it works you know for them and the lifestyle works for them and it certainly um, did yeah from Yeti. No, you were still at Yeti when you started your podcast. So we've we've been talking for the last right. thirty minutes to get back to where we started, which was the <laughs> podcast. Um, yeah. And the Hunting Collective was born. So even though there was a five-year gap from Joe saying, "Hey, man, <laughs> you got to do a podcast," what was eventually the catalyst that made you think, "Okay, now I need to do it." Yeah, I probably just the, you know, the power of that. Some of the storytelling I saw at Yeti kind of put it in perspective. But I also was like finally had a lot of my ideas about hunting, you know, codified in my own mind. Because you come, I was only 30, 31, 32. And like in the years prior to that, I, I, 
I find myself like thinking one thing one day and something the next, and you know, you search in the, those years to find a direction. Yeah. yeah, you're learning, right? And, and, and so, like I said, I, I'm happy that I, I did do a podcast when Joe suggested, although it would have been fine to learn in audio form and have people learn with me. That'd have been fine. Um, but I think I was just ready to, like, I I finally felt like I had a voice and I was ready to talk. And um, I was also, having been in, you know, for a decade in the media landscape, I really just wanted something where I could, like, a, a cathartic release where I could therapy kind of, for you. <laughs> yeah, where I could kind of just, I, I like to talk, as you well can f- see from this podcast, but, like, just talk about some of the things I was feeling and some of the things like I was running into and also just record these awesome and I also felt like, hey, I'm hunting oh this this next month I'm gonna go on a hunt with Remy Warren and Shane Dorian and yeah. the next month I'm I'm gonna go on a hunt with the Eastmans and the next well why like I'm missing something if I don't record these experiences um for myself, for my son, for people that want to listen to him. And um so it was kinda like a something I knew I always would lean towards. But, um, you know, I started listening to Cody Rich's podcast, to be honest, and listened to his thing. I was on it and then listened to it a bunch afterwards and started thinking, huh, this is pretty cool. I Like, it's this guy kind of feels like a journalist, and he's not just talking about himself the whole time. And I think <laughs> that's, what, that's what drove me to – and Joe Rogan's too, of course. Yeah. But, the you know, drove me to think, like, as a journalist, I could have a podcast, and it doesn't have to be just about me. No. Uh, yeah, and no, uh, genuinely, um, you know, it's it's for for me in the hunting space, and I, well, for both of us, Daryl just wrote uh, the our top eight recommended yeah, podcasts yeah. in hunting. I, space. I did it. I did it last year as well, and uh, it's, it's yeah. changed changed a bit from last year, but it's, uh, but it's yours, right up there. Yours is up there. Re- you know, I've I th- I don't miss one. I thoroughly enjoy it. We I kept Joe's in the same place because I still enjoy his podcast, <laughs> but I. I d- <laughs> But what, what I like about Joe Rogan's is he is one of two podcasts in the world that they actually exclude his his podcast from any stats that they give out for the for podcasting it's world. So many people because it, it skews all of the numbers. <laughs> it's that yeah. big. It's that big. He's the outlier. Yeah, yeah he is. Yep. He, he's the alpha yeah. when it comes to podcasting. For sure. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, he is. He has spawned so many podcasts from his. Yeah. I mean, I can't. I, I bet he's. I bet it's in the hundreds of people that he's had on. He's been like, "You should do podcasts, man." He's, he's <laughs> such a good. He's such a good person. Like he just wants other people to succeed and do good things. So I think he's he's spawned not only hunting podcasts like Ranella's and mine and others, but um, and you know, I think he's just kind of created this podcast as a good thing. Go do one, man. It's Go not that it. hard. Yeah. That's, that's what he told me. Well, I think uh, to this point, certainly, I think you've you've done a, a an awesome job as a getting into it from day one. As I said at the very start, I, you know the standard and everything has been so great, and you have some awesome guests on there and really digging deep on some fascinating yeah. fascinating topics. So, if any of our listeners well, haven't I, tuned in, Hunting Collective, go give it a click. Yeah, click it. Yeah, click it. <laughs> click uh, it. Subscribe. Um, Subscribe. I, I appreciate that. I it's been um I like I said, I just live for that like the feedback you just gave or somebody sharing their hunting story or asking a question or I mean that's how I I just kind of live for that. I, I don't really I love I love the fact this. that when uh, you hear especially the conversations with people that you clearly know very well on on your podcast is that you can I can hear you 
trying to understand and rationalize stuff in your own mind in the conversations. And I really like that because it, it, it has that very honest feel where it is a conversation that goes back to and fro and you're kind of molding yes, you have an opinion, the other person has an opinion, but you're kind of molding what the outcome of that is because of the debate that you're having. And I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I, I always like I don't I don't script them. I don't really I mean, if I don't know the person, which I, I'm sure that as I get into, you know, higher numbers in the podcast run, I'll have to interview some people I don't know <laughs> over the, <laughs> over the time. Um, but in the very short term, that's what I wanted to do. It's just like you have, I'm sure you guys have the same way. You have these conversations with people that you find amazing, you know, even if you can't tell them that in the moment, you can't be like, Hey man, these or have another beer. You're an amazing person <laughs> <laughs> would get awkward after a while. Yeah. But I think you can like, you can do that. And what I've tried to do is not do that as much in the conversation, but then tell that person, you know, like after the fact, when I record my intro and outro, try to just because i know that hopefully that person would listen back but like try to after the fact record an intro and outro that just tells that person specifically what i think of them and, and how special they the are the pressure's on now mean. when we record the intro and outro <laughs> <laughs> ben is a, a we're really stuck for Feel a guest to... this week so we get ben yeah. O'Brien. Yeah. he was yeah, he was active on instagram um, so we sent him a message <laughs> You know, what we like to do is have marginal guests on to make ourselves look better. <laughs> like marginal marginal looks, marginal talent. Oh, that's where I like to live. But yeah, I, I, that's sappy, a sappy thing to say, but that's really sometimes how I feel. Like Especially I've had a few in the last couple where like Wyman Menzer or somebody like uh, Omar Avila or these people, like I feel a little bit awkward really communicating to them what they mean to me face-to-face. Yeah. And so I try to try to encapsulate that, you know, in the beginning and the end, and then let the conversation be what it is in the middle. Yeah, we, it's pretty rare. Uh, People always ask us this if they're coming on, even if we know them. Oh, can you send me the questions? <laughs> so, no, no, no. That's that ain't how this yeah, works. You're not getting any questions. You're not getting any questions because I'm not writing any questions. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it, you end up with a much more free flowing conversation if you can. Yeah, some kind of I th- preconceived I think, idea. I'm glad to know that you 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 used to work for Yeti, so I suppose you have a, a, a um, idea yeah. in your mind. You're going to talk yeah, about that, as but a there's topic, no like. But. You know, ri- how old is your? Uh, do you have a dog? Yeah, do you, yeah. It's, <laughs> yes. well, do you have yeah. a dog? Yeah. <laughs> um, it would be awkward to be like, "Who are you?" Yeah. Like, what? That's yeah. my first question: Is who are you? What do you do? <laughs> Please explain. And I think you know we learned very early on when we started. The, I mean, it's, we're coming on our fourth year now. Uh, then yeah, three no, in a bit. Yeah. Fourth so, well, fourth year. at the end of the year, fourth year of it, and we were we were the first in the UK, and so we had no basis to go on other than the big shows that were in america so we we had a, like a very steep learning curve very quickly um yeah. and uh yeah hopefully we've uh we've caught up now <laughs> oh you guys are doing great i, I will say that the, i've got like seven i listen to and you guys are in that seven for sure and and like i i don't have a lot of like i, I find myself i don't have a lot of time but then when you love like you love doing something i'll get up in the morning flip on a podcast <laughs> listen to it while i'm getting ready for work Listen to it in the shower. Yeah, shut it off. To say, yeah, shut it off to say bye to my wife and son. Then turn it back on. Shut it off to talk to my boss. Then turn it back on. <laughs> you know, you find time to listen to to that stuff, and it's it's a cool medium. I find it is. 
Yeah. Well, it's I, I'm cool. honoured that to do. I'm honoured that we're in uh, your list of seven. You're certainly in our list. Uh, but yeah. it's interesting that you say seven because I was just reading I have, you were showing I have, me something the other day. We were looking at stats, but it, it correlates with mine as well because yeah. I've got eight that I subscribe uh, to. Maybe six or eight. I haven't counted. Yeah, much I mean, about that. it was the stats. The average person subscribes to seven, seven podcasts. Seven podcasts. Well, damn. Yeah. I, like I said, I like to be average. That's my aim. <laughs> Bang in the middle. <laughs> Stay right in the middle. So what can you tell us about what you're doing now? So you've left Yeti. The yeah. podcast is ongoing. What is does the world look like for Ben O'Brien and what can we expect to yeah. see you in and doing? Yeah, I wish I could really uh, you can't. give you the full... <laughs> give, I can't. Well, I guess maybe that makes it more exciting. Yeah, I, I maybe suppose more so, yeah. Maybe more annoying. I don't, I'm not sure which. Um, I'm starting a new media venture with some other folks in the industry. Um, I can't say who just yet. Maybe next week. Or the week. <laughs> I was talking to them about Watch what space. I could say and they're like... They said nothing. Yeah, they were like, hey... Yeah, they were like, say nothing. <laughs> we'll hunt you down. We are hunters. Um, it's a good job. That's not how we started the podcast. Otherwise, it would have been very short. What can you tell us? <laughs> nothing. All right. Okay. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. No, it's a new media venture. It's based in Bozeman, and it's going to be podcast. It's going to be, um, you know, really, it's going to be kind of a culmination of a lot of stuff we talked about. It's mm-hmm. a group of people that, a group of people that all came together. Um, to start a new venture because we all kind of think the same way. Exciting. Yeah, we all, uh, and and all the names you guys will know, of Mm -hmm. course, and uh, makes it even more exciting (laughs) and secretive. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, it's just folks I've known for a long time, and we all share an ideal and we share a goal, and and it was was a really good chance for me to, to dive back into media and dive back into content creation and um, take my podcast along with me and do it on a more professional level. Awesome. Hey, that's yeah, exciting. Was, they, they have um, yeah. they have the, the London Podcast Festival, and I think there needs to be like the Bozeman Podcast Festival where we, where we yeah. go over and, and, and basically it's a week of just podcasters from all over the world. In ben, make it happen. And, I believe you can uh, do uh, but this. But there has never, there's never <laughs> been a collective of all of the outdoor space podcasters Ooh, in one space, like podcasting for a, a whole week giving shows or anything because they do it in London and it's sold out for the whole week in London. We've just created <laughs> we something tonight. Yeah. We have we create- created something. At, See, this is how things are created. At quarter this, past two in the morning the in Scotland, <laughs> we've yeah. just we created call it the hunting. Yeah. yeah. We could call it the hunting collective. <laughs> it's a title. Yeah, it's a good title. title. Yeah. That's a great title, I find. Yeah. Uh yeah, man. We could do that easy here, as you well know about Bozeman. We could just kinda like look around the corner, there'd be eight podcasters standing there at the bar. <laughs> yeah, all yeah. Come up. over here. Yeah, all queued up with their headphones on. But yeah, I mean I <laughs> that's I hope that we can do that 'cause it's I love like I said, there's there's guys that that podcast um right now and live in Bozeman that I like let's just go let's go hang out and drink a beer and podcast and every time I'm done I'm like I thought the conversation might get stale it doesn't get stale and I get I get like some weird high off just a good conversation like this one um you exchanging ideas and you know when people are going to hear it later on I mean I I don't know maybe I'll get weird around that later but right now it's just it's like it's nice it's good energy energizes me for the rest of the day or you guys for the rest of the morning there as it rolls yeah. as the sun uh, comes up in a couple of hours I'm, I'm, the, I'm, the, going the sun, fish, I'm going fishing in like five hours the, so. sun, the sun will be coming up in a matter of hours 
But <laughs> Ben, it has been awesome to speak to you in uh, in person. Uh, I'm hoping that, well, uh, kind of in person, but I'm looking. I'm hoping yeah. that very soon we will actually get to meet in person, probably in Bozeman, because we are going to plan to come over there at some point fairly soon. Um, come for the we'll, fest- we'll be the guys on Collective Podcast Festival. Yeah, we'll we'll be, we'll have headsets on at the bar. We'll just be, we'll just walk around <laughs> with headsets on. <laughs> Yeah, the Scottish guys with headsets. <laughs> yeah. oh, those, those guys, yeah, I know them. Yeah, we're if, friends. If people uh, want to find you on Instagram, you're Benny Bob, Ben Bob, Benny OB, Benny OB three hundred one. I wish I would have known people would would uh, call that out when I made it, but I didn't. So I'm there Benny OB three hundred one. You know that you. I'm not saying you need to change it, but you can change it. Oh, you can? All yeah, right, yeah, well. Genuinely, you can, oh. yeah. With no effect All to your right. account whatsoever, because we changed ours like oh, like two, three years ago to just um, like tidy up a little bit. And uh, Yeah, I should probably tidy that up. That was like a high school nickname when I was Ben partying. O'Brien might, might be fine. <laughs> but to be you think fair, Ben O'Brien? <laughs> but to be fair, when you type on Instagram, Ben O'Brien, it comes up. It does come up. So it, it actually it doesn't does make up. any odds. Yeah, yeah, it comes up. And Let's not be superficial. We're sticking with it, people. Yeah, we're going Benny OB. Come see me, Benny OB three hundred one. Be all kinds of stuff there. And I imagine that when you can release what you're going to be doing, people will be able to see it there, will they? Oh, of course. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll announce it there and a bunch of other media outlets. Um, I find it hard to believe you won't, folks that listen to this podcast and maybe listen to mine, won't um, hear about it uh, some other way. So we're we're planning a PR blitz okay. right now to kind of get it out there in the world and let people know what we're what we're going to attempt to do and it should be within the next you know couple of weeks well, or months we'll be sure to let everybody know as soon as we know yeah well i appreciate it or, appreciate as soon as, as, or i should say as soon as we can let people know what we know <laughs> <laughs> well you know, you'll be the first to know when we're uh we were actually when you you guys were uh messaging earlier today we were at, we were in a meeting about that exact thing and i was wondering if this would be the first place i could uh could talk about close. it but no close but no, no. It's too close i know now i'm just teasing but it's um it's exciting i'm excited to be in bozeman bozeman's a fine place cool well it's been great thanks a lot ben and uh, i look forward to listening to your next podcast you guys too all right man take it easy thanks guys Thank you for listening. Remember, you can listen on most of the podcasting platforms, be it Spotify, which is the big one now, um, iTunes, Stitcher, uh, I actually can't even remember all of them, Podbean, Podcast Addict. iHeartRadio. Yeah, iHeartRadio. Just type it in. Did you mention Spotify? Yeah, Spotify was the first one I mentioned. Right. They're all Switched on, off now. Yeah, it's too late. SoundCloud, <laughs> SoundCloud as well. Um, they're all on there, and we are out normally, typically, Every two weeks. We are. Uh, Sometimes we have a a show in between, but uh, yeah, it's normally the Thursday every two weeks. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. A lot of you do. A lot of you do. And uh, it means if you subscribe, if we're late putting out a show or early putting out, sometimes we've been early actually, and that's just due to us being away. So it's been like the Wednesday night. Means your phone just automatically downloads it when you're connected to Wi Fi. Don't even have to think about it. Don't even have to think about it. It just connects. And uh, leave us a review. Please do. Yeah. And don't forget to enter our competitions every two weeks. Uh, this week, we told you about it at the start. It'll be on social media. It is to win a Reloading with Rosie mug. Mm-hmm. And if no one no one gets the competition this week, which hopefully you do because we'll actually put up the post Make properly, sure you see it. Um, then I'm getting the Reloading with Rosie <laughs> mug. Uh, and that's a wrap. Yep. Hope you enjoyed the show. It's been 
awesome to have Ben on, and I'm looking forward to having him on again in the future, but hopefully we'll be sharing a beer face-to-face, preferably in Montana, because I'd really like to go. Yep. Catch you in two weeks. Bye.